but it was too late and they all hated him and mm-hmm. he had to delete his socials and that was have just... you ever been able to say that like publicly and tell that or is it just the instagram post or have, have you ever been able to kind of explain that situation to this detail none of this has been explained to anyone <laughs> love and exclusive <laughs> yeah. that's crazy yeah I definitely had a lot of like adult people following me but there was a lot of young audience i i shouldn't say i lost them all there are some some true blue like Cali fans out there who have traveled across the universe with me and are still there and and like that's die shiny and support die shiny i just think that's so cool Welcome, everybody, back to my channel and podcast, The Mormon History Hoedown. I am Kara Burrell. Sometimes I go by Nuance Ho. And sometimes, you know, I want to talk to historians. Sometimes I want to talk to therapists. Sometimes I want to talk to musicians. So I am really excited to welcome my guests on today, Zach Bryant and Callie Crofts. Hi. Welcome. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks for being for here, guys. Us. Thank you so much. The name of your band is Die Shiny, and I got sent your music video the other day by my friend Sarah. Shout out to Sarah, who's a a singer in a couple bands. If you're ever at Lake Effect and you see some just like a power vocalist, Uh, that's Sarah. Sarah Hakes? Yeah. Hello, Sarah. (laughs) Yeah, shout out to Sarah. I get sent a lot of things a lot of times, but Sarah said, you need to watch this. Then (laughs) I was going to watch it. and. I was trying to put my finger on where I recognize Callie from. And yeah. And another part of the story that we're going to have to get into a little bit, as much as you feel comfortable talking about, if you're familiar with the Shaytards, which was slash is one of the biggest YouTube vlogging family channels and YouTubers pretty much of all time. Yep. And I watched the Shaytards when I was Mormon. Shay, the dad. Married to Colette, and uh, Colette's sister is is Callie. And I was just looking up and remembered some music videos and and different little um, projects that you guys worked on together. Yeah, um, different Mormony themed things <laughs> and how the times have changed. So as much as you want to talk about that <laughs> is is crazy too. There's so, a lot. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, a lot in my story. So you guys have this new, an EP that just came out yeah. and this new music video called Sacrament. I reposted it on my YouTube and my Instagram. I watched it like 10 times and through the symbolism and the messages and just the song itself is a banger. <laughs> and I was telling you before we started, I'm like kind of picky. I listen to the same thing all the time. <laughs> I'm not one for like false flattery, but I'm like, everybody get in here, listen to this song. Really enthusiastic about your guys's new music video and just want to support you guys and think that um yeah your sound is awesome and your style is awesome and hope my audience can uh get on board and and click the links below to listen to the full music video and buy the album and support your music and come out to the concert on the first. All right. So let's start off with what do you think if we just play the trailer right now and get people introduced to yeah. the the music video and then I'd love you guys just kind of tell your story and we'll go through all of that and play some clips and talk about the music video and some lyrics that were meaningful to you that you wanted to include and why. And trust me, I don't just listen to any old music videos and be like, oh, they made a song. I'm happy for them. No, (laughs) my standards are high. 
which I know is what you feel too, because you're watching this channel, of course. And so you guys are going to love it. Um, the response I've already gotten from my followers about this music video has already been incredible and overwhelming. So it's been incredible and overwhelming for me. Yay! <laughs> when you posted that story that showed your followers' comments about it, I was just like, oh my God. Yay. <laughs> good people. Got some good eggs over there. Thank you. Nobody told me that this was my body. I never believed it was mine. I wish we could play the full music video. Little teaser. Little but uh, I said, let's all just get an acapella thing going right now. And <laughs> we'll sing it all together. It'd be great. First and foremost, the first lyric that's kind of right there is about, I, what, what is it? I, nobody I, told me that this, this was, was my body. I never believed it was mine. So with a jumping off point <laughs> like that. Yeah. yeah um, as a woman who was raised very conservative in a, in a small town. I'm from a, a tiny town in Idaho called Firth. It's like the population sign is like 475 people or something. From the beginning of our project Die Shiny, which was like 2017 was when we started. I pretty much knew from the beginning because I'm a nerd obsessed with concepts and themes that uh, I wanted to have four EPs that all became a big concept together. Our first EP is called Drugs. The second one we just released is called Sex. And there are two more words after. <laughs> the goal with these concept EPs is to take the word and really dive into like the deep emotional core concepts behind the word. I was really overwhelmed knowing that sex was on the way. <laughs> I thought like, oh, I'm this, I'm this liberated grown woman. I'm independent. Um, I've made my own way. And then this sex concept came up and I was just like, oh, I have to dive deep into some things that I, I didn't realize I still had trauma around from being raised in purity culture. And I realized that I could not unwrap my concept of sex and sexual liberation and, and who I um, and what I understand of the concept of sex, I couldn't unwrap that from my Mormon temple experience. Wow. And the song just kind of <laughs> just poured out of me. Unfortunately, things are too relatable in yeah. some ways. So, um, yeah, thank you for sharing all of that. And as we're going to get into so many things that I think listeners to my podcast will really appreciate you taking the time to come in and share what this this album means, I guess we call it an EP now, don't we? Yeah. What this... It's an album too. Okay. Uh, what this what this music means to you and like what the events were throughout your life that have come up that you just poured into this music that I obviously really appreciate. A lot of people in my fan base have already appreciated. So let's talk about the beginning of your story and where you were raised in this small Idaho town and the type of messages that you were getting as a young Mormon girl and what led you to make some of the choices that you've made in your life. Yeah. So my Mormon experience was actually so beautiful from the get go. Uh, when I was right after I was born, like a month after I was born, my mother found out that she had breast cancer. Um, she had like a lump that she thought was from breastfeeding me. So I was immediately being taught about 
the afterlife, the plan of salvation. Um, my parents took the approach of being open with us and, and trying to prepare us for the possibilities. And a lot of people ask me if, if I think that was the right approach or not. And there, there's no knowing. I completely respect my parents for being open about that. And it was harder for some of my siblings than others. And um, it's basically just different trauma at different times. So instead of processing the trauma of my mom's death when she died, I started processing it early. You know, mm. um, I never had a sense of, I didn't have a sense of permanence. I didn't have an, a, a blissful, oblivious um, immortality about me as a child. You know, kids don't, kids don't know they're going to die. They're just being kids, but I knew I was going to die, you know? So that's heavy. <laughs> that's, that's, that's why I am so preoccupied with death and write dark songs. Now. <laughs> but um, I think one of the parts of that experience of, Caring for my mom's death that I really latched onto as a kid was the romance uh, between my mom and dad. Um, they were a beautiful couple and yeah, they were so in love and our community was so small and tight knit. All her best friends were these like relief society women because my mom was like sick like from the beginning of my life, my whole experience was being taken care of by a lot of women. So the wow. Relief Society was always around. They always had meals. Um, they always were like playing with us kids and making sure we were like, okay, when my mom would be having surgeries. Um, and to clarify, she, she passed away when I was eight. So this was eight years of an off and on, like, health roller coaster for mm -hmm. her and, and our parents having to be sitting us down and saying, okay, mom's going to get a surgery. And, you know, so mm -hmm. anyways. <laughs> and tell me the, like, how many kids were in your family and like, what, um, where did you fall? Yeah. So I was the youngest of five. Okay. So yeah. you're the youngest. So the kid, the rest of your siblings are a little bit older, but you were kind of born into an environment where you knew that your mom was going to be passing away at some point that was on the table. Yeah. And yeah. Um, that was, that was one thing as she approached the end of her life that she realized, I really just, I want to see my last child baptized. And so I had my eighth birthday. I was baptized a few days later. Um, she passed away five days after my baptism. And yeah, for me, it was, I mean, it was, I was a kid. So like when you hear that as an adult, it's like, oh, but as a kid, I was just like, everything's weird. Everything's awkward. Like my mom's in a wheelchair at my baptism. Take all the time you need. I knew this was going to be a lot, but. It's, it's surprising to me still how much trauma I have. It's surprising to me still how much trauma I have from that childhood experience. But yeah, I remember everyone around me, all the adults just thought it was so beautiful and so magical. And 
I, I felt like I was, um, I had so much attention because I was this youngest child of this angel woman, you know, um, and all the, like, all the people around me were just so concerned about me losing my mom, not getting to know her as well as I should. And, um, and I think there was more attention on me than like my older siblings who were probably dealing with much more complicated, you know, teenage mm. emotions and difficulties than I was because I was oblivious and weirded out. <laughs> I was just like, this is heavy. I don't know what this is. Um, but yeah, so growing up, I was, I felt like I was very watched in my community and all the teachers in my school, like were also in my ward and, um, or in my stake. And they just were like, Oh, Callie, Colleen's youngest daughter. You know, I just felt so watched. Um, and me and my sister Colette, she was four years older than me. We were inseparable. Like this experience made us soulmates. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I love all of my siblings, but Colette and I have a special, a special bond. Like we just latched to each other through this experience. We were inseparable playmates. We were playing with our Barbies like 24 seven. Um, I would have like nightmares about bad things happening to my family um, all the time. Mm -hmm. And Colette would have nightmares about bad things happening to me and not being able to protect me. So she had kind of a, a protective um, spirit <laughs> with me. And yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's beautiful that you guys had each other and could like continue that bond into adulthood and all of that. And not easy stuff to kind of go back into your memory and draw up those old feelings. But yeah. yeah, that's important to kind of explain, I guess I, what I'm understanding is that sometimes when the community is what you know about the Mormon church, mm -hmm. like what, what family is, what eternal family is like, that is what Mormonism is to some people. It's yeah. not about like a testimony in the book of Mormon and this and that. It's just kind of people rallying around trying to find the reasons why bad things happen to good yeah, people, you know? Exactly. Well, and I guess um, I start there <laughs> as I explain the music video because um, my desire for permanence really influenced my life. Um, I just learning from the time I was little, we, we would have, we would have a little family home evening and we'd, my dad would do the object lesson with the, the glove on his hand. Like the glove is the body and the hand is the spirit. When the glove is taken off, the spirit still lives. And um, just my little child brain processing all of that. Um, I was like, okay, all right. We know exactly what's going to happen to mom. We know where she's going. Um, this love story of my mom and dad that I see and admire so much, like that's going to be forever. Um, and that's what really kept me a devout member of the church for as long as I was. Right. Yeah. So as you moved through like your teen years and things and developed a relationship with say the, the church and, you know, your role and your responsibilities and things. Um, 
So if you have already taken on that role that you're going to be devout and I'm assuming, you know, that's the only way that you feel like you'll ever see your mom again. Yeah. yeah. So like, what are some of the the messages that you feel like you took really hard and ingrained deeply within you from your Mormon upbringing? Yeah. <clears throat> the, um, the temple was, was everything. It was the ultimate goal. It was, we must be sealed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I even, it's funny cause I was kind of a, kind of a rebel spirit, like alternative culture kid. Like, <laughs> like my dad was always worried about me when I was a teenager because I was, I started writing songs when I was 12. So I was all about like music, pop culture. And, um, my dad's a musician as well, I should say. So he, he was always so proud of me. You're, you're so amazing. I'm so proud of your talents. Um, like, it's so cool that you followed in my footsteps and you're a musician. Like I would get this, this sense of swelling pride, but he would always kind of add a, but you know, the, the most beautiful, fulfilling thing in my life is, is family. And, and it's interesting thinking back on that. I'm like, those are just different topics of conversation, (laughs) but he always kind of put them together, which made me feel like, oh, he's worried about me. He's worried that this thing, this music that he's expressing pride in will like take me away from this other thing. He's acting like they're different. I dated a guy through my senior year of high school that I ended up marrying when I was 19. And now, and now we get into this can of worms. <laughs> All right. If you're ready. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Okay. Because I, I have one other side question. I have yeah. a side quest for us. Yay. So when you mentioned, you know, growing up that you're really into different, you know, pop culture, counterculture type things. And we all draw influences from, you know, what we liked and whether that's music or style. So I'm just interested to know, like, what were your inspirations I guess then we can talk about now too, but what kind of stuff were you into? Yeah, I was into a lot of stuff. Um, because my older siblings were giving me all these great influences. My oldest brother was <laughs> he was the rebel spirit. It's funny because he is now he's now like the just the most dedicated, like Mormon dad. Um, he has a lot of kids, but <laughs> he would he would like dye his hair with Kool-Aid, all sorts of different colors. He was like this punk skater, goth kid. And he was always blasting uh, like Nine Inch Nails and The Cure Mm -hmm. and Depeche Mode. Um, So I was in love with that like new wave goth (laughs) world from the 80s and early 90s. In small town Idaho. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then I had a sister who was absolutely obsessed with the Beatles um, my dad was like a bluegrass musician, so I just latched on to, to whatever emotionally spoke to my soul. But yeah, I, I thank my family for their influences. Mm-hmm. Zach, what about you? Let's get you in on what, because that's going to come up a little bit later, but I'm just interested to know what kind of stuff you grew up listening to and interested in. It started when I was pretty young. I think I like started listening to the country station on my little like flashlight radio thing that I had that I got for my birthday or something. I was like, Oh yeah, I can listen to music now. So it was like, my mom showed me the country station cause she probably thought it was like acceptable or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not a country guy in high school. I was into a lot of, um, nerdy bands cause I was a band nerd and Oh, what'd you play? Percussion. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. I have a saxophone downstairs. You might have seen it. Yeah. Oh, nice. I uh I can play a tune now and then, but yeah, that's awesome. Band kids are for life. So yeah. So I spent I was spending a lot of time in the band room listening to bands like Rush and Dream Theater and King Crimson and Porcupine Tree was one of my favorites. Kind of like roots, like the most influential stuff on me is probably a lot of the nineties rock stuff, like Smashing Pumpkins and mm-hmm. I told you guys before we started like that. that I'm like I don't do false flattery and I really do love the sound of your, your EP. And even if I didn't know, and even if I didn't have the sacrament song, I was like, overall, I love the vibes of what you guys do. I love your guys' style. So I can tell that you guys put your heart and soul into this kind of stuff while I'm over here. still listening to S club seven and spice girls, but that's neither here nor there, (laughs) whatever, not a big deal. I have a diverse. Yeah, I'm diverse. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about the, the, path that led you to get married in the temple you mentioned that you know when you're raised mormon that is like the pinnacle of success for a young mormon girl to hold tight to that virginity find a worthy priesthood holder and be able to get married in the temple so as much as you want to talk about that journey and then what kind of led you out of that marriage and out of the church so yeah my father remarried uh a year after my mom passed away and I, I ended up with like six step siblings. <laughs> so Holy this is where we are now. <laughs> I'm going to oh. take off my soldiers. <laughs> Layers are coming off in the interview. My God. We're wearing our celestial whites. <laughs> I know. There's, are those your garments? Did you buy them? Nice. Is that your temple clothes? <laughs> These are our new temple clothes. <laughs> um, yeah. So growing up, I actually was like, my parents were were fairly chill in the the Mormon space. You know, we could like we were wearing tank tops in the summer. Uh, drinking caffeine wasn't a big deal. Once in a while, we would like peek an R rated movie. It wouldn't it wouldn't be a big deal, you know. And I always um, I always felt like the person that I am deep inside. I I was. Just I was chill with everybody. I was kind of irritated by Mormon culture things. And I wanted my friends to know that I wasn't judgmental, that I was like a different kind of Mormon or whatever. <laughs> um, so I I would I dated non-Mormon boys sometimes. Um, I remember my dad saying, like, I'll never tell you you can't date non-Mormon boys. That is just wrong. That's judgmental. Like we're supposed to love people. Like he's a good person, you know? Um, and really taught me to think for myself, which is what has eventually led me out of the church, which would break his heart. <laughs> um, anyways, never future kids the same thing for themselves. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Um, but I remember I I had this boyfriend that I I really was in love with him. He wasn't Mormon. And I remember the the tearful breakup when I was just like, I I gave him a book of Mormon. I'm sorry, Brad. <laughs> I gave him a book of Mormon and was like, I love you, but I just you have to understand, I can't fathom the idea of loving someone and marrying them and and having to be torn from them when I die. Mm-hmm. It's just I have to be sealed. I have to be married in the temple. Um, and, and he went off crying about it and wrote a bitter song about it later. 
Um, so this great link that below. (laughs) (laughs) This was who I was. Um, my senior year, I dated this guy who was not, once again, not a member. He was three years older than me. So he was already, you know, an adult out in the world. Um, I thought he was so, so mature and cool. Um, and he was, I don't need to go into that. I invited him to take the missionary discussions. (laughs) Um, and he converted for me basically. And, uh, now, now I understand he, he was a grandiose, just run-of-the-mill grandiose narcissist mm-hmm. and please list mission- the red flags <laughs> as <laughs> they came up <laughs> yes um taking the missionary discussion so he actually was like a calvary chapel like born again christian mm-hmm. so he he and i would have conversations about god and have these spiritual moments but we were different religions and i went to his church i went to calvary chapel with him one time and listened to the worship band and um because i was like i can't expect him to learn my religion if I'm not willing to go to church with him, you know? Um, and he would basically just Bible bash with the missionaries, every discussion. And I was thinking, Hmm, it's probably not going well. I got to prepare myself to like be mature and know that I can't be with him, even though I really like him. And the very last discussion, um, it didn't, it didn't go well. It was at my house and I was like, Oh yeah, he's not showing any signs of like opening his heart to this. And, um, he went home that night and the next day he came with this grandiose story of how he had been awakened by an audible voice from a dream. No way. <laughs> where he, he was in a dream where he was leading an army of angels into battle and God awakened him from his dream with mm. a voice. <laughs> And he knew that the church was true in that moment. My gosh. So let's write a jingle right now. For, <laughs> is it grandiose narcissism or is it Mormonism? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> he definitely saw an opportunity for an organization where he could shine. Um, so, yeah, it was just this amazing story. Like, oh, my God. Um, and he would always compare himself to Saul becoming Paul in, in the Bible, like having this amazing conversion experience. and. Mm-hmm. You know, that impressed all the all the people in the ward that he started going to. Um, I don't even know him, and I just feel like shitting on him right now. <laughs> just like, yeah, and I'm Oprah, whatever. <laughs> and I was 18, and I was just like, it's my beautiful story. Oh, this was before he converted the church, too. He told me that he knew that we were that we were going to be married, that God wanted us to be married. And I was like, that's beautiful. But there's a problem with that. You know, I'm going to get married in the temple. That's what started the discussions. <laughs> so, yes, he he knew exactly what to do to to get this vulnerable, sweet little girl in his life and start his mm-hmm. little picture perfect journey. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes high school sweetheart stories can be enduring and delightful. Yeah. And then a lot of the times you really don't know yourself or what situations you're signing up for. <laughs> yeah. So what situation did you sign up for (laughs) i oh man yeah i was married for eight years and really right from the get-go i was like this isn't the normal marriage i had been promised or taught to expect um 
it was it was downright confusing. He he didn't he withheld affection. Um, he didn't want to touch me like <laughs> like we had we had a honeymoon, you know. <laughs> we did the obligatory expected things, um, but it, like a few months after we got married, it was like he was no longer interested in touching me. Um, I'm sure he had traumas, like I'm sure he he had his own traumas with his views of of sex and all that, but he he couldn't um show affection, and I was starved for affection for eight years and mm. the entire eight years and everything was um like fine. <laughs> And he didn't express any any problems or any any negative emotions. Um, so when I would when I was unhappy, I just didn't understand why. And I was very because of the way I was raised, I was very communicative. I was like, we talk through our problems, we talk through hard things. So every month of this eight year marriage, I was bringing it up again. I was like, I just I don't feel. I I don't I'm not happy. I don't understand why. I don't know if you love me. I love you so much, he would say. Like, why that makes me feel terrible that you think I don't love you. And then I'd feel guilty. So it was just gaslight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so much gaslighting. Um I started having panic attacks when I was in my early 20s. Um, like really struggling with having panic panic attacks often and he was just oh that's a weird mental problem you have <laughs> you know mm -hmm. and then anytime I expressed like I, I don't feel like our relationship is fulfilling I feel like we're not happy um then he'd be like that's just because you have you have anxiety and depression like I'm fully happy <laughs> I'm like oh it makes me feel really guilty that you're fully happy and I keep bringing up that we're not happy um so yeah that's that's how that was. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> very hard. And yeah. Especially just a young Mormon couple that doesn't quite have the tools and know where to go for help. And I'm assuming a lot of the tools are usually just like, you know, the triangle when you have God at the center. Oh, you guys remember the triangle? We can talk about the triangle. Oh, great. Oh. We're symbolism already. <laughs> We're getting into it. I remember the triangle lesson and being like, it's so beautiful. Like, I am not any less than my husband. Um, I have my relationship with God. He has his relationship with God. We have our relationship with each other. There's total equality. I learned differently in the temple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One thing about my struggles in my marriage was that I didn't think it would be okay to tell anyone about them. I thought that I would be um, like a disloyal wife if I like bitched about him to my family or my sisters or, you know, um, so I just quietly, I just quietly was irritated by his narcissism. I didn't realize until after my marriage that people were like, man, he was really. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and those anyway. things usually, yeah, they grow out of their own kinds of traumas where people don't get what they need in childhood or whatever. And everybody else around them can just be the receivers of that lack of, you know, a lot of things, lack yeah. of control that they had in their early life and a new sense of trying to hold on to that or think about themselves, prioritize themselves. Yeah. So that can't be easy to try to work with and feel loved within. So my heart goes out to you for that. Um, you 
like we didn't learn anything about mental health or even like the term narcissism. Yeah. So I, I felt very alone and I constantly just thought I can take care of it. I know how to communicate. I will work it out with him. And he just always denied that there was any problem. So one question I always have about people who convert to the church, like you kind of mentioned that he had this dream and he converted. Um, do you feel like as far as the church goes, that was something like your ex-husband was really like bought in on and like, what did he like about the church or where oh. was, was, was he fully enmeshed in the conversion? So no, that was absolutely a story he made up to feel important. Oh um, man. Because later, I know that because later after we were divorced, um, years after we were divorced, I had the opportunity to talk to him again and kind of look for some closure. Um, and I brought that story up, like your, your dream, your God awakened you with like God's voice awakened you. He was like, I don't remember that. Oh man. <laughs> you don't, you don't remember that? Um, that's like, he was walking a line for being a new prophet and <laughs> don't remember. So I decided that meant, okay, you made that up 100% oh, no. to marry me. Yeah, so I he wasn't enthusiastic about the church. He just he was only enthusiastic about it in the moments when it made him feel important and seen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Throughout your teen years and getting married, and you mentioned like having this like hopeless romantic side of you and stuff. Is there anything in those years where you had to struggle specifically with like purity purity culture, meaning like the way you had to to dress to fit in or following the rules of like the law of chastity that like might add to your story later on. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to put into words. It's uh, a looming presence all the time. I knew that I was in charge of men's emotions and I was in charge of their purity or, or their behavior um, with my purity. Yeah. I, I remember feeling incredibly guilty about things that were, not <laughs> things that were so innocent. Um, but yeah, I, hmm, how TMI do I get with? <laughs> I try to create a safe space, but it's up to you to determine how safe that space is. And so <laughs> whatever you want to share. I mean, yeah, I don't know how I, like, I'm the kind of person who wants to talk about the gritty details of sex with my girlfriend. So I'm like, wait, <laughs> same. <laughs> okay. We, we share can, and care. We can use the masturbation word. Yay. Um, <laughs> so I didn't even know that existed. And I think they try to, they try to keep the girls from knowing that they can, that that even exists. The boys, they know, they know they're going to figure it out. And they're like, don't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I, Zach has your, your story about praying to, Oh, yeah. Like praying that I wouldn't get a boner or something. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And then we grow up and we pray that we do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's so sad to me. But yeah, so in a way, it's like, oh, nice. I just that couldn't I... stop. <laughs> <laughs> nice that I wasn't being hounded about not doing that constantly. But yeah, I, I don't. The alternative of constantly feeling like I was in charge of men's like feelings probably wasn't great either. Um, yeah, I didn't know that existed until, uh, my boyfriend when I was 16, um, uh, gave me an orgasm <laughs> and I was like, 
Oh, I, I knew there had to be like a point to sex. <laughs> I learned the text, the textbook definition of like how it works mechanically, but not like why, not, not like why it's appealing to people, um, aside from making babies. So, oh, oh, thanks, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> you know that Taylor Tomlinson joke? <laughs> You know, you know, Taylor Thompson, the comedian, and she has a lot of uh, like uh, she's an ex-Christian as well. She hosts a new late night show on CBS. She's my favorite. And she has this amazing joke. I did not make that connection for a long time either. But she has this joke that puts it into words just like that, where she's like, all my friends were having sex, but they weren't orgasming. But I wasn't having sex, but I knew how to masturbate. And I'm like, you're going to hell and you didn't even come. And it's like the first line. And I'm like, exactly. Like, there has to be a point to it anyway. It's amazing. Anyway. Yeah. So, so how did how did the, the the highs of orgasm compare to the lows of purity culture, I guess, is the question. I, I will forever be thankful to Brad. I <laughs> saying his name because he and i are really good friends like we're great friends now and we've talked about this and laughed about this but i'm just like thank you brad um thanks brad yeah thanks for teaching me when i was 16 instead of you know i could have gone not knowing um a funny side note to that is i remember i felt guilty about it because i knew like well this has to be wrong because it feels good (laughs) (laughs) and that's how the church works right like I haven't heard about this thing before, but it's got to be wrong. Um, So I kind of felt guilty about it, but I didn't want to stop doing it also. Um, And I remember thinking like, when I'm married, when I'm married, I can masturbate to my heart's desire (laughs) and I'll be free. Um, And for my wedding, someone gave us the book. um, Between Between Husband and Wife? Yeah. As a as a newlywed, like trying to be a good Mormon wife, I was like, we should read this book together. Just thinking it'd be about, you know, relationships and like chapter one or something right off the bat. It's like you're not supposed to masturbate even now that you're married. Like that is that is for your husband. And I'm like, why the fuck did I read this book? <laughs> now that I, I know the not rules. known and been innocent. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Yeah, I think I knew that rule, and I was like, "Fat chance." Yeah, <laughs> we just like we just have an honor code. Just like tell me if you do it, and if it gets out of hand, and you told me like six times this week, we might have a discussion. Nice. You're not watching porn, you know? <laughs> You're in different cities sometimes. It's ridiculous, but yeah, that all goes back to like you don't really own your body. Like your yeah. only way to have an orgasm is to get married and then with another person. That puts a lot of pressure on another person, mm-hmm. even yeah. if they're the sweetest person in the world. Like mm-hmm. things do not work out and match your levels of, of horniness and Absolutely. relationships. Yep. So mm-hmm. you had to keep everything back under wraps. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it didn't plague me. I, I was kind of, I'm, I'm really glad that I wasn't um, really tormented by it. I tried not to do it, but I, you know, I, I we remember, all tried not to do it. <laughs> I remember, um, I remember there was a baptisms for the dead coming up. And my, like, everyone was signing up for it. My dad kept being like, are you going to sign up for baptisms for the dead? And I was like, I think I'm going to go to, like, my friend's party that night instead. But, like, I love I love the temple, Dad. I love baptisms for the dead. It's like, it's just this particular time. I'll, I'll catch the next one, you know. I'm going to do my friend's thing. And he's like, oh, 
okay. And then, you know, a couple of days later, like, are you sure you don't want to? I'm like, no. And he's like, I'm just concerned you don't, you know, you're not prioritizing the temple. And I can tell this is going to become like a bigger, like worried about my soul kind of discussion. And finally I'm like, dad, I'm not worthy to go to the temple right now. And he's like, oh. Had you confessed <laughs> or you just knew deep down you wouldn't I, pass that part of the chastity interview? I actually never confessed about that. Hell yeah. Um, except when I was engaged and um, like we went too far, like together. Then I, then I was like, Oh no, I've ruined my temple marriage. I have to tell my bishop it worked out, <laughs> but yeah, I never confessed about that. I felt like, I felt like this is between me and God and maybe I'll confess when I'm ready to stop because, you know, you don't want to confess and then do it again. Cause that's worse. Right. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of how you're taught. So I, I ended up just never confessing cause I never was ready to stop doing it. But yeah, I'm like, dad, I'm not worthy. And he's like, oh, oh, uh, and my bless his heart. My sweet, adorable dad. He's like, you've been necking. I'm like, (laughs) yes, (laughs) you've been petting. (laughs) Yes, dad. (laughs) He was like, oh, and then he, I don't remember, he gave me some lecture about purity and, and marriage and staying worthy. <laughs> I was just like, make it be over now. <laughs> but I, I think he, he made some sort of a promise with my, my poor sweet worried about not being able to raise her kid's mother, you mm-hmm. know, that he would raise me right. Um, Cause I was so young. And that came up sometimes, like, I promised your mom. And I, and that was really heavy for me. Of I'm just course. like, I just want to be a kid. But yeah, he was very, he, he was full of, he was full of fear. And I, I love him. I love his dear heart. <laughs> I, oh, you've been necking. <laughs> it was such stress. I could see the vein popping out of his forehead. What do I do about <laughs> this? I love old timey terms too. And I just... The story is lighter in my mind because I didn't love it. And I just imagine him with the bluegrass banjo. Yeah. And then he just twiddles his way on out of the scene. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, that's a story that me and my sisters laugh so much about now that like, that's, that's a quotable thing. Now you've been necking, you've been (laughs) (laughs) petting. I can see that um, as a delightful cross family inside joke to lighten the mood. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I love how close you are with your family, despite all of the traumas and and problems and yeah, that heavy stuff that's come out up. And it's sweet that you guys still have such a good relationship, like you've mentioned. Zach, fill me in. Who is Zach? What was your upbringing in Mormonism? Anything that you feel like sharing? And what led you out of the church? And what led you to Cali? Uh, I grew up in Orem, Utah. So like every single person around me was Mormon, like everybody went to school with was Mormon except for like the few kids that weren't, but like you weren't supposed to talk to them anyway. So I was just surrounded by Mormons all, all over the place. I was very like bought into the, the, the things you're supposed to do. Like you're supposed to like go on a mission and get married in the temple and all that kind of stuff. So I was like way into it. I was like true blue, whatever, like after high school, things started to get a little strange. Like I just didn't know what I was doing. Started to march to the beat of your own drum. Yeah. Some could say that's a reference to your percussion thing earlier. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I guess. Yeah. 
Um, Just throwing in the jokes where I can. Yeah, I like it. Uh, <laughs> I was dating a girl, like my first girlfriend or whatever, and like at the end of our very long relationship that went much longer than it should have, uh, we ended up like having sex and stuff, and it was like right around. It was like right after I turned 19, actually. So like right at mission age or whatever. Uh, I was like already like avoiding things like taking the sacrament because of, you know, the incessant masturbating that Woo! most people did Bro, as teenagers. On this, on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like I would like show up late to church and like miss sacrament and kind of like shamefully like roam the halls of my church building and like hide in the stage at the back of the cultural hall uh, during the sacrament Mm -hmm. in the dark and just like sit in shame. Like your family thought you were late for sacrament meeting, but you actually weren't. I wasn't. You were just hiding. I was just hiding. Yeah. So another way to interpret that story would be like, I was late for sacrament meeting because of the incessant masturbating. (laughs) No, that's not you weren't going with that. Um, Yeah. So I don't know. There's already like a lot of shame around stuff. And, um, Mission H came around. I wasn't worthy. So I was avoiding talking to the bishop about it. Like every week I'd go to church, all the people I knew growing up, like my leaders and like uh, basically adults in the ward who knew me um, started asking me questions every week. Like, hey, when are you going to get those papers in? Like, you going to do a mission? Blah, 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 blah. And I like I got really tired of it um, pretty quickly. I didn't premeditate this or anything but i just like eventually stopped going because i I was tired of hearing questions all the time um and it wasn't long after that that i tried mushrooms for the first time out of pure curiosity i like i kind of became obsessed and started reading about it Mm -hmm. like what year was this oh 2008 oh cool so i was i was 19 still i was also 19 in 2008 yeah, makes sense. Yeah, so I took mushrooms for the first time, and it blew my mind. I think everything just shifted after that. Um, but I didn't really know what was happening at the time. I just look back now and realize, like, oh, yeah, I can see all the way things happened now <laughs> um, and why I stopped going and why I stopped caring and all that kind of stuff. But at the time, it was just kind of like just living my life. Mm-hmm. So Was that hard for, like, your Mormon family and people to accept? Um, yeah, my mom especially hated it. Um, but I kind of got let off the hook in a surprising way. (laughs) Um, a little bit there, there came kind of a head where my mom was like, all right, you either need to go on a mission, go to college. Cause I had like been going to college, but like kind of dropped out cause I was failing, um, or join the military or else you can't live in this house anymore. And I'm like, those are your options. <laughs> like, okay, whatever. This is a problem. I don't want to deal with this. Like, I just want to do what I'm doing. I was playing a lot of music at the time. I kind of was getting started in the, in the scene as like a professional, I guess, like playing with as many people as I could play with and all that kind of stuff. So that's what I wanted to focus on. I was kind of freaking out about that. And then not long after that, I had another mushroom trip, of like a heavy one. I took a lot of mushrooms. <laughs> Love to hear it. And, uh, you know, it was like up all night until like six in the morning. And it was like the craziest thing I'd ever done in my whole life. And the very next day, my parents sit us down. This was like a Sunday. So I didn't go to church. I like you know, was up till six. So I slept most of the day. 
And then our parents sit us down and tell us that they're getting a divorce. And like my sister was on the intercom because she was living in North Carolina at the time. And um, anyway, it was just kind of this big thing that I was like, are they getting divorced? Cause I took mushrooms last night, <laughs> you know, like stupid, like paranoid or like just crazy thoughts. So you're like, there's crazy stuff happening right now. And I can't tell if I'm still on drugs or not because this is so crazy right now. Yeah. When you and Kelly met, um, what kind of stuff were you doing? And cause you guys eventually had to combine forces is what I understand so at we, some point. We met in 2008 when we both worked at the same music store in Orem. Soon after your first mushroom trip? Uh, yeah, around that time. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had just moved from Idaho for my husband's uh, work. He'd got a job in Provo. And I got a job at the music store. I was axe manager. Yep. <laughs> music store in the mall. <laughs> Which one? Best in Music, University Mall. Oh, um, I know the family that owns best in the beastons the beastons nice. are yeah. in my home ward nice who are also in the tabernacle choir yeah so mm -hmm. that's where i used to buy my reeds for the saxophone that was previously <laughs> mentioned anyway nice love how it's all come together yeah, yeah. <laughs> world. um so cute cute all right and then yeah when we met i was just in the middle of my sad lonely marriage <laughs> um but we were just um, easy friends. Like we, we were just coworkers, really. We didn't do anything outside of work, but we like conversation was really easy between us. And we often overlapped shifts and would just talk and talk and talk. It was totally comfortable. And that was about all there was to it. Yeah. Um, I knew she was married right away. So like, I wasn't like pursuing that or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, my ex's job took us to Singapore. So I lived in Singapore for a year and a half. He was like selling supercomputing software. And I I grew up in Singapore. <laughs> like I've, I found myself there. I just walked around in little sundresses. No, I didn't walk around in proper little sundresses. I had garments under them <laughs> in the hot jungle weather. Sorry, but your heart was in a sundress. <laughs> but my heart was walking around in cute little sundresses, just discovering the world by myself. And um, that's where I, I just gained so much independence and like self-love and self-understanding that I hadn't hadn't got before. Starting in 2010, um, I started trying to pursue a music career via YouTube. Um, we mentioned the Shaytards. Basically, when I lived in Utah still, I had made a little like Beatles cover song video, like a crappy recording in GarageBand, and we made a beautiful video for it. And um, we didn't understand the scope of what like my sister and her family were doing with Shaytards. We just knew they did in it. 2010? Yeah. We knew they were doing oh, this thing, and it was like, cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so by 2010, they probably already had quite a following. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I want to say 2009, they really exploded. I might be wrong about that. But yeah, it, they had quite a following already. And the rest of us hadn't really quite understood how big it was yet. So I was just doing my own thing. My sister ended up uh, sharing, the the Shaytards ended up sharing my little music video to their followers. 
And out of nowhere, it had like a hundred thousand views in a day. And I was like, what is happening? And then I realized what was going on in my sister's life. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, you're like famous. Um, <laughs> and I was like, so excited because my music has been my dream since I wrote my first song when I was 12, you know? Um, so I was just like, well, this is the way, like, I, I know the music industry is is hard and you either get discovered or you don't and you just have to fight, 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 uphill battle. So here's 100,000 people who are aware of me now and I have to keep them interested somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, I have so much more experience in the music industry now and, and you know, I'm aware of like avenues to try and get your stuff out there. But back then it was just like, this is my option. I have to be a vlogger now. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. This is what they're doing. This is how they got an audience. Um, I just want this for music. But if the only way to keep people interested is to like, let them into my daily life, then that's what I have to do. Um, I, I am rabid. I, I follow my dreams <laughs> with a vigor. So I started vlogging and I am an introvert. Oh God, it hurt. It was hard. It was not natural. Me and my husband were a little like family vlog thing. I mean, we didn't have kids, but we were trying to do what the Shaytards were doing a little bit. And did they give you like tips and when Shay and Colette, right? Yeah. Okay. I always get it because she always, she changed. It was them. Katie Lett. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, just let's not go there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so when Shay and Colette started to rise up in fame from their family vlogging and so forth, and had you like been like front facing, like on their channel at that point, like, oh, and here's Colette's sister and we're doing this thing yet. Um, like how familiar do you think like their fan base was with you? Um, not a lot. So that, that little music video that they shared was the first thing. And of course people got really excited initially like oh there's a new family member um and they came and followed me uh, but my involvement over the years was pretty minimal um i was actually really afraid of like seeming like i was trying to like benefit from them <laughs> i was just like that, that's what everybody family. does <laughs> yeah you know, it's my family i yeah. i don't want yeah. them to feel like i'm like help me out here you know um so i really made it a point to not <laughs> not try and be involved if i was there and they're vlogging i was there so i was i was definitely in a few vlogs when i was around or when they were at family um functions but um when there was music projects to be done that that was when i was more involved um so when i moved to la after singapore we actually did a couple intentional like music projects where me and Colette and my dad, you, you know, <laughs> did some songs yeah. on YouTube. Yeah, and, I've seen them. Um, some songs we grew up singing together and such. And there's, there still exists the Crofts family band. <laughs> like mm-hmm. That's something we still produce. We had a Christmas album and everything. Um, but yeah, music was a huge part of our upbringing and is still just like, so special to us. Mm-hmm. So you wanting to be a musician and probably obviously changing your style quite a bit throughout the years and what you would write about your sound, all of that. And then when did you kind of notice that like, 
the type of musician that you wanted to be would not be found in like the Shaytards audience widely. And yeah. that that probably even under the best case scenario, like that's not going to be able to merge um, the, the correct path for you. Yeah. So that wasn't until after I left the church. Um, what was happening was I, I definitely was fitting my music into my belief system. Like I was making it acceptable. I, I can write a song about anything, you know? <laughs> so um, at the time it was just like, well, I don't want to be too dark. I don't want to, I don't want to bring any bad spirits with my music. Like I, I didn't worry about it too much, but I just naturally kind of fit my music to my worldview. Um, and when my marriage fell apart, my, my new music emerged <laughs> and yeah, I, my voice sounded different. It, it's actually crazy uh, to me how it, it was like my balls dropped. <laughs> I, I went through my divorce and my voice literally changed like something opened and I knew how to use it differently. That's incredible. In, in an instant. If you want to clarify like how, what the timeline is here between your marriage, your faith crisis yeah. and um, meeting Zach, exiting your marriage yeah. and exiting the church and then finding that your balls have dropped. So <laughs> totally. Yes. We, we moved forward with that. So when I, I lived in LA, I was actually only there for a few months. Um, I found myself really lonely and depressed. I didn't have my exciting little Singapore life. Um, and I was just in a world where everybody was trying to, everybody was trying to get famous. And like, <laughs> I had my goals with music and I just, I was invisible. Um, and I was just doing it all in this dark hole in my house, trying to like, how do I be a musician? How do I get attention? How do I make an album? And <clears throat> we had our own home studio. So one thing about my ex-husband was he definitely, and I didn't, I thought he was the most confident person I knew while we were married, but I realized in, in hindsight that he was very insecure. He just thought, okay, I, I bought the most expensive stuff. Um, not the most, <laughs> I bought really expensive, nice audio gear. Yeah. Um, yeah, the $50,000 studio. Yeah. Spent so much money <clears throat> on it. And, um, and he would just like watch a YouTube video when he needed to do something, but he wouldn't like nerd out about it. Like people who are into that are into that, you know, he was only into it when I, in the moment that I needed it. And it was confusing to me. And later I was like, oh, he just, he really needed to be a part of it and needed to be needed by me. Um, so anyways, uh, we were going to make <laughs> my next album in our little home studio. I was feeling like, you know what, we're, we're successful in life. Like we have, we make good money. Um, I want to benefit the people from my life that, that I respect in the music industry that I've worked with before. So I thought of Zach, I was like, I don't want to just go find some drummer in LA and hire him. Like I want to fly Zach out and have him play. So yeah, I, I hired Zach, flew him out to LA. We had a guest room. My ex-husband was, was, the engineer 
but he also had a, a day job and was quite a workaholic. Um, so he worked his normal full-time job, usually like more hours. And Zach would like practice. We'd, we'd be in our little studio and I'd be like, okay, let's, let's come up with a part for this. And we'd practice a little bit and he's really good. And my songs were really simple. And it, he's like, okay, I know what I'm doing on that. I'm like, all right, I guess we'll wait till, till <laughs> I guess we'll wait till my husband's home to record this. So what do you want to do for four hours? <laughs> so I basically was just playing host um, and being like, what, what do you want to see in LA? Uh, let's go to the guitar center. Let's just finding some ways to entertain my guest, you know? So we basically just hung out for a week and, and oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> like we, we had an electric connection it was just undeniable and like smacked us in the faces pretty much from like day one. Yeah. And it hadn't been there before. We'd just been like comfortable friends at work. No yeah. problem. Like, but we were just like, Oh, hi. hi okay. Um, this, this one-on-one experience just brought this thing to life and we were so good. We didn't speak of it we knew we could not um, talk to each other about it. But I, so we were both having our own internal experience knowing the other person was too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You, yeah. You could tell the other person was feeling the same thing. Yeah. Uh, we were not, <clears throat> we're not doing anything about it. You we're didn't just like, tell anybody oh, you just kept it to yourself. Let's eat our burgers now. Um, and it came out in the form of like, this is weird. I feel like you're like my best friend right now. You know, like that was the most that would be said. Like, I really want you to, I wish you lived here and could be in my band. Um, so I texted my <laughs> current band at the time and quit over text oh, right shit. then and there. Like, yeah, I'm going to move to LA and be in a band with Callie. Cause that sounds way better than what I'm doing right now. So. Yeah. We just needed to be near each other. Dropped Zach off at the airport when, when we were done recording again. We had not spoken of it, but we knew that we knew. Um, dropped him off at the airport on the literal drive home from the airport with my husband. I was like, we have to have a serious conversation. And remember, we were having a serious conversation every month <laughs> because I was always like, mm, something's not here in our relationship. I'm not happy. We're not happy. I feel like you don't love me. No, I'm so happy. Something's wrong with you. We get home. And I'm like, I fell in love with him. I fell in love with Zach. Um, we didn't do anything. I did not cheat on you. I didn't mm -hmm. tell him I was in love with him. Um, and this is this is me being just like, I'm I'm honest. I communicate. Like <laughs> my from from my upbringing in a very traumatic situation as a young child, I learned like, is you can talk about anything. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't feel guilty about talking about anything. Sometimes you place too much hope that other people can do that too. <laughs> yes. And, and I was just like, I'm doing everything right here. I have, I have done nothing wrong. I don't believe that people um, are wrong for having feelings. I mean, we even learned that in the church, like your homosexual feelings aren't bad. Acting on them is bad. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So that was what I, um, I kind of lived by. I was like, I had these feelings. I did not do anything wrong, but these feelings 
have made me realize I, I will not live, um, starved for affection anymore. I just can't, I can't live without real connection in my life. And this, these feelings for Zach might be just like a delightful little fantasy that is a shit show in real life. (laughs) It turns out to not work, but I don't care. Like I know this state of being exists and I will not live without it. Um, and, and that, that just threw my life into so much chaos <laughs> so quickly. Like at first I was feeling so guilty and so like, Oh oh my God, what do I do about this? But the way that he acted um, made it much easier <laughs> to leave him. <laughs> he was immediately just like, well, you better stop having those feelings. And I'm like, but the, the what about our wait? <laughs> Let's talk about the root of the problem here. And again, it was just, it was all me. I was a lonely housewife with anxiety and depression. And any any man that visited us, it could have been anyone. And I would have fallen in love with them. Really? <laughs> um, and I noticed that he quickly started to use um, language he hadn't used before. You know, he was pushed into an into a a state of um having to fight. <laughs> so his true his true nature kind of came out and he was started using language that made that showed that I was his submissive. Um it'd be like, I just don't understand how you can bite the hand that feeds. And I was like, stop. You realize you just made me a dog in your metaphor. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, Mm -hmm. um yeah and And i think that's all really honestly sorry to cut you off i think that's more common than people in different i guess any kind of relationship could be married not married mormon not mormon um where they don't understand sometimes what people can each contribute to that relationship and sometimes it's like yeah you bring in the money and somebody Mm -hmm. they take care of the household or like i'm holding space for you in ways that put me out and yeah. all of those kinds of things and don't understand the contributions that each person of whatever gender can kind of add to it. And it's not just about money. Yeah. And then when it feels like, you know, like you were saying, I don't want to be the submissive because yeah. you have, you have the money that you provide to this relationship. Yeah. I don't know when I provide to you that. Absolutely. And we had even, I felt like a feminist <laughs> throughout our marriage. Like even when I was a Mormon, um, I, I hadn't, heard that that was wrong yet you know <laughs> to be a, a theme it's like i had not heard i shouldn't do that thing oh man oh shucks <laughs> i was gonna masturbate and believe in my worth as a woman uh, you guys came along in the mormon church yep so i i felt like i was i was a feminist through our our marriage and i would even sometimes i would feel like um like we would have conversations sometimes where i was like i just i want to be doing something more like I I I don't know if I should go to school or like try to get a job that I like more or something and he'd be like you don't have to you don't have to do that and I'm like well I know (laughs) but it sounds interesting to me and he's like no no I'm like I'll take care of you like he was so um he was so into that role and and he would very much encourage me to to not need that. And he, he took so much pride in making enough money that I didn't have to do that. But when I actually wanted to go to school one time, 
when I, I thought I was going to go to UVU actually, um, for like fine arts. And I was really considering it. And he threw a fit about how he would not change his lifestyle for me to go to school. <laughs> and like, he was like, as long as you, as long as you work and totally pay, like make enough to pay the tuition, like then, then you can, but I'm, I am not going to change, go backwards in my lifestyle so you can go to school. And so I felt like, you know, I felt it's yeah. dejected and hopeless and like, that's way overwhelming to think about right really now. Sucks. So I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. So literally like talking about things that you sacrifice to be a spouse, it's so much not about money alone. Cause I, I moved all over the world for his job and supported him and who knows what I would have done otherwise mm -hmm. and become. Um, yeah, girl. That is one of the hardest things, honestly, that I think so many, um, especially ex-Mormon women relate to that I see in Facebook groups the most is like whether getting divorced or leaving the church is suddenly having this like Truman show, holy shit experience of mm -hmm. like, whoa, all this time just went past and I don't have a way to make money for my family if I needed to, or like I haven't developed things in the ways that my husband has yeah. leaving the church and leaving a marriage um, around the same time is so devastating. And I know a yeah. lot of people relate to that. It's, it's how did you get through it? it? It was crazy. Um, so, uh, yeah, Zach, Zach went home. I blew up my marriage. We had a couple weeks of like, what do we do? Um, where we're trying to talk about it every day. And, um, of course I, I ended up reaching out and telling my family what was going on. And, I mean, because I had never talked to any of them, like I'm struggling in my marriage for eight years. They just, um, oh, my, my parents just thought there's another man involved. You are, you have to, <laughs> you have to honor your temple covenants. And I was like, you're not listening. Um, that I didn't do anything wrong. And that was what blew my mind the most. I was like, I, I don't understand how taking like all of the like taking the most correct approach the most right the most like upfront honest approach could like in be, tune with your feelings yeah, yeah. like how could this be yeah. causing me so much like shame like everybody is like what are you doing <laughs> um you must not follow your heart <laughs> you know and i was like oh and um and i i knew like I had just been, my world had been shattered. I knew that I couldn't live without, mm -hmm. like I couldn't live the way I'd been living. And so it wasn't like, oh, marriage problem is presented and we got to work through it and see what, it was like, I was done. <laughs> I was done from eight years of not, of, of my husband not being willing to try at all. And I didn't care now if he was willing. Um, because it took me saying I fell in love with someone else. I, I want a divorce for him to be like, well, we should, we should go to therapy, which I'm like, mm, should we <laughs> you know, like, I just remember um, really agonizing by myself, trying to work out my decisions, like over whether or not there was a possible way that him changing could make, could make me happy. If he like worked on our relationship, could that make me happy? And I'm just like, I'm so far from in love with him. I'm I'm not in love with him anymore. 
it, there's nothing to save. It's mm-hmm. gone. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just want to add that uh, this is overall a, you know, family values podcast, obviously people being happy, generally speaking as well. <laughs> so there's a fine line to walk, you know, when you're talking about, yes, falling in love with somebody else and like the fact that you guys didn't have kids, mm-hmm. right. That also really can influence the situation. Yeah. Um, probably would have changed things dramatically and who knows what your relationship would have been like as well. And so Absolutely. just want to make sure that people stay nice in the comments because community building over here. And this is like a very, like, um, not, not super uncommon feeling for like a lot of women feeling this way in their marriages yeah. and could, could lead to a lot of judgment like your family was talking about. But mm-hmm. when you spell it out like that, who doesn't understand what is, you know, putting themselves in your shoes and the way that you've described it and feeling this disconnect for so long without somebody uh, meeting you on the levels that you're trying to meet them on and yeah. communicating the ways that you only know how. And then things just get messy and people can unintentionally get hurt from, you know, our, our childhood traumas are sometimes steps far ahead of us until we enter into these relationships and the idea that like you just have to stay in it because of mormonism or your ceiling or wanting to be with your family or you made this commitment yeah and stuff and so um people ask me all the time about my marriage and things we're doing great by the way um but it's always hard because it's like i don't know it's it always depends on i can't walk in everybody's shoes yeah and for Mm -hmm. that person that person that person i don't know what the right solution is but yeah it's listening to your feelings looking at the commitments that you made Sometimes under duress, you could say, like under a lot of other uh, conditions that are just not fitting. Uh, and as people change, do yeah. they still fit together? And so all of those questions and themes are all things that people should explore on their own. But it's nuanced and it's messy. And very um, sorry that you didn't have the the support that you were wanting as you were going through that. But um, yeah. yeah, and then I was also going to ask, so Zach, what were you doing during this time as, as all of it's going on? Were you guys... <clears throat> making plans to be together. You guys had to kind of separate while Callie was figuring that out. So I I came back to Utah after quitting my band and planning on moving to LA. And then she gave me a call one day, like a week or two later was like, I'm in love with you. And I was like, okay, I'd be lying if I didn't feel the same. Uh, What do we do about this? (laughs) Yeah. Cause it was like, because we hadn't talked to each other about it at all. And after this started happening in, in my life with my husband, I was like, Zach's planning on moving here. I need to tell him not to. <laughs> Conversation started like, hey, you sh- you probably shouldn't move forward with your plans to move here. Like, I mean, you can, but not like, I can't offer anything like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's not, it's not going to happen. Um, so if you're going to move here to be in my band, like you probably shouldn't. He was like, why? And that's why I was like, uh, cause I fell in love with you. <laughs> cause. And now, and now I'm figuring out my marriage. He, <laughs> he was like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I just decided to move to Sacramento cause I had a friend there who was a drummer and in the music scene. And it was like, um, a good music scene. So I was, just trying to get plugged in somewhere else and I needed a change. So me and my husband were not making any, any progress. I ended up like fleeing back home. He's like, you go home. We'll be apart for a minute and think more clearly. Um, so I stayed with my parents and 
I told them that I wanted to get divorced the very first day I arrived and they told me they were disappointed in me. And I just, I couldn't like make them understand the eight years of misery I'd been through. It was like, because I hadn't told anyone about it, that it wasn't real. Um, so when it sounds like, oh, sorry, you're saying though, that like you did that partially because why again, you said that you didn't want to like sound like a bitchy wife who's just complaining about their husband. Yeah, I felt and, like it would be disloyal yeah. to make anyone, um, to give anyone the impression that I had a bad marriage. Yeah. And it's times like that where at least somebody should be seeking some kind of like therapy or confiding in somebody yeah. and that adds to you feeling really lonely, but doing that from a place of actually trying to be loyal to your husband, which led to like a disloyalty to yourself yeah. and your feelings. And then it all kind of comes out. Well, yeah, I didn't want to be disloyal. And, um, thinking back, I also, I think I just would have been embarrassed if, if I looked like I had a bad marriage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I had converted this guy. I dated him as a teenager and was just like head over heels. And, um, I, yeah, I, I just like I had made my decisions and I would have been embarrassed to like show anything was not right about them mm -hmm. to my family. Yeah. So and I just thought I can handle this. <laughs> yeah. And I think that also just kind of speaks to what we do for the ideals of like the family values, quote unquote, of the church yeah. is a lot of self-betrayal and a lot of, yeah, keeping up appearances and projecting the images we want people to see in the, like, we have this happy marriage, things are okay on the surface yeah. and just a lot of quiet suffering. A lot of things, it's what we were always talking about, things that like unhealthy things that constantly boil up to the surface when we don't talk about them and we don't acknowledge how messy people really are just because you're in the church doesn't absolve you of any of that. Yeah. Well, and, um, I also realized I have, I had a unique, um, kind of relationship with, with my dad. I just, um, growing up and having that kind of pressure of like, I, I promised your mom I'd raise you right. Um, and having him always worried about me, um, made me feel such a drive to prove that I had my shit together and I'm fine. Dad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think that that yeah. was a key reason that I didn't want to show to him that anything was off with my life. See, I'm, I'm great. I was great. I was a great kid. You were always worried, <laughs> but I was a great kid and I made great decisions. My life is great. Mm -hmm. um, I went and talked to my Bishop. I, I did all the things I was supposed to do. I was like, these are the right things I need. <laughs> I need help. I need counsel. I need, I need to pray this out. And I was, I was really fervent in that. I went to the temple by myself, um, in LA. And I remember just being like, I am not leaving the temple until I have answers. Like I am, I'm going to leave here knowing what I need to do. And wow. I didn't realize that would make me emotional, but it does. Um, yeah, that, that like temples, that endowment session, just mm, all the things that had always been a little bothersome to me, a little uncomfortable about the ceremony were just like really extra. Um, I, I remember thinking like, where are the women 
that can help me out because <laughs> uh, even when I just like talked to the bishop, I was just like, this is a nice man. Mm-hmm. This is a nice guy. I'm talking to him about my deep like, feelings of needing affection. And like, I, I just feel a woman would understand me. And no man, no authority figure that I was talking to could possibly understand me. I just suddenly, they were all just grandpas. And I was like, I have needs. I touches my love language. I, <laughs> I haven't been touched for eight years. I don't, I don't want to talk to you about this. You know, I, um, and it became very clear that like my, my happiness, my realization that I can't continue to be happy in this situation. That was the bottom of the list of importance. Like that, that was the bottom priority on the list for anyone else that I talked to. Didn't matter what my happiness and my intuition was telling me about, about, how I um, needed to live mm-hmm. in order to be happy at all. And so I remember wondering if my happiness was important, which was a really dark thought. Going to the temple <laughs> uh, against this backdrop of wishing that there were women. And it's not that there weren't women I could have reached out to, but it's like in the system. That was not the system, you know? I I was like, this is my religion. This is my truth, my life. This is the system that brings me salvation. And it's not bringing me any women (laughs) to understand me. Um, And so, yeah, I went to the temple and I was in a woman-centric mindset. And that that did me in. (laughs) It was probably this one temple session in L.A., um, agonizing over my marriage that that brought me out of the church later. Um, I realized very clearly I, I was okay. <laughs> I was hit by a giant um, contradiction. Um, the The article of faith, the scripture that like men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. Um, scripture is like this is the word of god this is truth infallible truth um and i realized as i was watching the the story of adam and eve unfold and eve had eaten the fruit um and they were and god was there now wondering like why why have you covered yourselves what what has happened and, and Adam says, the, the woman you gave me, she ate, she ate the fruit you told her not to eat. You know, <laughs> this is unfolding. And suddenly it's so clear in my mind, okay, Eve has done something she wasn't supposed to do. Um, God now says, oh, Eve, you did something you weren't supposed to do. Um, because of that, I'm now asking you to covenant to obey your husband. Uh, and I'm like, that's, that's the definition of a punishment. You did something you weren't supposed to do, and this is what's happening because of it. I am making this covenant. Sorry. I'm making this covenant. I am directly being punished for Eve's transgression. Do the scriptures apply to me? Did I always just think they did? And I was wrong. 
because I'm less. Yeah. You know, I thought men <laughs> was me. But maybe it wasn't. Maybe they didn't mean mankind. Maybe they meant men. And that was like the darkest, one of the darkest moments I've ever had actually was the end of that temple session. The rest of the temple session, I just thought, where's where's Heavenly Mother? Where's Heavenly Mother? Like, there's always these beautiful explanations as to why we can't know her. But what we're seeing here from, from God and from Jesus and from Michael, you know, what we're seeing here is a picture of what men can become. And I don't see any picture of what I can become. And I sat in this last room with my, like, I'm going to have an answer, you know. Um, and for a, just a brief moment, I thought, well, but what if this is still all true and it's not fair? Like, we just naturally, as humans, we just naturally think the afterlife is going to be fair and just and perfect <laughs> if we believe in an afterlife, you know. Um, but that's not necessarily reasonable. Maybe this is all true, and I'm going to have to start a feminist revolution in the celestial kingdom, like, and defy God because this system isn't fair. Um, and uh, my brain could only entertain that for a moment before I just prayed and felt like I had the answer that God loved me, and that was it. And I was like, that's all the answer I need today. And I left the temple. Um, and I didn't leave, like, fully decide to leave the church for until a few months after that. But that was the undoing. Wow. Yeah, that's tough stuff to kind of confront so much about your worth, your, your womanhood, your covenants, everything. In the place that was supposed to, like, Give me, give me my worth, you know, show me my worth. <laughs> yeah. I think anytime we're going, what's funny is the temple tries to tell you that like, it's that space that you take outside of the world where you meditate on all of those things. And it's kind of when you are confronted with what the fuck this church really is in yeah. that place. You're like, I'm going to go, I think I found my worth and I think it's not here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it shows you something kind of unintentionally and, yeah. and wakes you up into those things. But yeah, that's really some of those dark places that we have to go into to kind of find the light. So mm -hmm. thanks for being willing to share that part of your story with us, you. me and Zach and everybody out there. <laughs> I said us, I meant me the first time I'm hearing it. But yeah, that makes me tear up a little bit thinking about just how much throughout your whole story of just what you're expected to be within these containers, these confines, man, man woman, whoever, there's just containers that that God really does love you. Yeah. Do you love me when I'm confined like this? Or do you love me for me and who I'm intended to be, who I want to be? What what happened after that? Um, yeah. It, honestly, that was all so overwhelming that I just was like, I can't, I can't think about that right now. <laughs> you know, that didn't make me suddenly like, this isn't true. After that, I had gone to my parents' house, taken some space from my husband. Um, and I was kind of, I was kind of convinced <laughs> to like go back to LA, um, reunite with my husband and, and give it a, a proper go with marriage counseling. And I, 
I remember definitely thinking, oh shit, he's probably going to want an LDS. He's probably going to want to find an LDS counselor. And I don't want that. And that was like, you know, a, a telling thing in my mind. I was just like, it's not that, it's not that I don't love the church. It's just like, I don't want someone who's biased. I, I because this, the church approach I've been taking has, it doesn't have my happiness in mind. Um, like it's true. It's, it, it's true still, but it doesn't have my happiness in mind. Um, so, and, and luckily my husband actually wasn't like set on finding an LDS, uh, therapist. So we found a therapist who, who was amazing. And in retrospect, I'm, I'm so lucky. Like there's, <laughs> it's not easy to just find a, a fantastic therapist out there. Um, first try. So we found this woman and we, I believe we only had two counseling sessions she created a space where each of us could tell our side of the story, our pieces of the story without being interrupted by the other, which is so valuable. Um, Cause when you're trying to talk things through and you're both so emotional, it's like sometimes you cannot mm-hmm. <laughs> get there without being triggered. So she just was a, a mediator that made sure the other one could not talk while one was telling their story. In one of our sessions, my husband said, I'm, I'm so mad I'm just so angry because I feel like the only reason she's coming to counseling is because she already knows she wants to leave me and she's only doing this um, so that I will be fine with it. She's just coming to counseling to try and get me to be fine with her leaving me. The therapist was, that strikes me as a kindness. (laughs) And I was like, someone, someone sees me. Like, mm. it's okay for like I because I honestly felt guilty hearing him say that I was like he, he's right I, I do know that I want to leave him and I'm only here because I've been talked into being here and I feel worried that he's not going to be able to handle it if I just leave him uh, I was like he's he's right I'm bad I'm wrong but she she was like it strikes me as a kindness <laughs> like if she already knows she wants to leave you but she's still concerned about you being okay that strikes me as a kindness. I'm like, and it literally took that mm-hmm. tiny, tiny bit of being seen for me to the next day be like, I'm making this decision. I don't care if everyone hates me for it. I don't care if I'm alone. I need to make a decision for myself. Mm-hmm. So that woman's one, one little tiny mm-hmm. sentence in therapy was enough. Like someone in the world sees me. I'm not evil. I don't need to be ashamed. Um, and I'm the only one who can, I'm the only one who can choose my happiness because no one else is going to. <laughs> yeah. That's a profound thing to realize. I had a car full of things and that was my whole life from, from eight years of like nine years of adulthood and what I felt like was establishing a life with him, um, even though he made more money. Um, and, and I did make money. I didn't, I wasn't just not making any money. I was, I made money. <laughs> Um, on my YouTube career at that point, actually, it just was, you know, not significant compared, significant compared to his income. So I, he very effectively made me feel like I, I didn't deserve anything because he worked really hard and made the money. Um, a couple weeks after I was home with my car full of stuff, he started like threatening that if I tried to get anything else, he would destroy me because he had proof of my text with Zach, like 
yeah anyways conversation yeah we had so i had told you know i had called him that one time and told him don't come to la and we had like text conversation and we weren't like i love you it was like he was actually the only reasonable adult like helping me Mm -hmm. (laughs) he he was like hold on think about this like you have some value here you know like he he was being this very reasonable human being so at this point your your ex-husband he's still a believer in the church and you're not is that also part of the situation no no so um i had my my temple experience and i i really just put it in the back of my mind and i was it was a struggle and i realized that they didn't have my best interest in like my happiness in mind but i still i still considered myself a a believer i i really just put it in the back of my mind because i was going through too much and i also like whenever i considered it i thought this isn't something to rush into this is your whole life you've you've believed in this and been so devout like you don't just you know, just knee-jerk reaction, like rush away from your faith because you had these thoughts in the temple. Like this is something to consider painfully over a long period of time. Um, consider carefully. So, so I was still um, considering myself a devout believer, but I was starting to think, you know, future relationships. Maybe I won't care that much if we get married in the temple. Um, maybe I won't judge. Uh, a future partner who isn't into the church if I am. That that was as far as I was taking it. <laughs> I decided to divorce him two weeks after I was home with all my stuff. He called me and was like, is there any way to make this divorce faster? And I was like, wait, wait, what? And he's like, is there any way to move it along faster? And I was like, well, I filed the papers in California. So California law is a minimum of six months. And he was like, the, is Idaho law? I was like, well, Idaho law is not like it can happen faster in Idaho. Um, so I could cancel the California papers and like look into a lawyer here. And he's like, yeah, do that. I'm like, what's up? <laughs> what's up there? Mm-hmm. You found someone? He's like, I don't, I don't need to, I don't, I'm not obligated. And I'm like, no. Like, and I suddenly became like, giddy best bitches with him i'm like you found somewhere haven't you? yeah and he's like mm-hmm. and he kind of dropped his guard and was like yeah and and what proceeded was just the weirdest <laughs> conversation where i was so relieved that he had started dating somebody this will take all the attention off of me being some evil harlot who's leaving my husband yeah. Like the fact that he's moved on this fast is ridiculous, but it doesn't hurt me. It makes me feel like my people will suddenly see that my feelings were legitimate mm-hmm. and that he wasn't in love with me. So I was stoked and I was just like, tell me all about it. And he told me all about it. Like mm-hmm. we were like two besties for a moment. He was just like, I met this girl and blah, blah, blah. And she came over and we had a first date. And, blah, blah, blah. and I was like, oh, this is cute. It, it, it's so weird in retrospect, mm-hmm. but I was just like, I'm happy for you, man. Um, he told me the story of telling her that he loved her for the first time and how he wrote her a poem and how, and I was just like, 
this is cringy and gaggy as fuck and it would not work for me, but I'm so stoked that he's found someone and the spotlight can be off me. Because I gave him that confirmation that I was totally fine with him being with someone else. Two weeks after I left him, two weeks, two weeks after I left him moping on the doorstep, he had said, well, because the LA divorce takes six months. In six months, if you you haven't found your happiness, I'll still be here. Mm. You know, two weeks later, can we please make this divorce happen faster? Oh, I want to get engaged to this woman. And I'm like, okay. The next day he posted a photo on Instagram of him um, on a vacation with his new girlfriend drinking a glass of wine. Mm. Um, and I mean, what an, what an idiot because we hadn't told, we had been, uh, we had been silent on YouTube, but we had an audience and like, why, why are you, why are you posting this? Why? And he got attacked. He got brutally massacred. How long have you guys like not been posting on YouTube at that point? At that point we were, we were pretty intermittent, like, but on his personal Facebook page, on his uh, Instagram. Oh, on his Instagram. He just ran so anyone. Posted. Oh yeah, that is a wide I'm audience. Like, why I'm sure. Did, why did you choose to do this? And and it's not going to look good. And our whole audience was just wow. like, "What are you doing?" And they they just sicked him until he had to delete his, all of his social accounts. Oh, and I was wow. like, "My hands are clean. I don't care. I do not care what's going on." I did post a like. I posted um, like a damage control Instagram where I was just like, Hey, um, you guys don't know, but we've, we are not together. Like we have decided to get a divorce. Like I, mm -hmm. you know, these things are delicate to announce to a, a fan base. So like I had been thinking I would do that in the future, but I was suddenly like, uh, hey, by the way, we're getting divorced and, and I'm fine with him. Like he's okay, but it was too late and they all, hated him and mm -hmm. he had to delete his socials and i was have just... you ever been able to say that like publicly and tell that or is it just the instagram post or have, have you ever been able to kind of explain that situation to this detail none of this has been explained to anyone <laughs> love and exclusive <laughs> yeah. that's crazy yeah and honestly no one probably cares anymore because i lost that whole audience when i left the church <laughs> i care i care somebody who's deeply into um, every piece of like the Shaytard's drama, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, Callie and what's his name? Woke up, they're drinking wine, dating other people. Yeah. Yeah. And may I ask the audience skews much younger for, I'm guessing not just the Shaytard's audience, but your audience, I'm guessing as well. I'm trying to remember, like I definitely had a lot of like adult people following me, but there was a lot of young audience. I, I shouldn't say I lost them all. There are some some true blue like Cali fans out there who have traveled across the universe with me and are still there and and like that's die so shiny cool. and support die shiny i just think that's so cool i just was curious about maybe it's just um people who are also like teenagers into like the hopeless romantic kind of ideals who don't understand the messiness of life um that just see a couple and think they're going to be together forever yeah yeah sometimes and then it's like life gets real yeah, a lot, a lot more going on beneath the surface. People were people were disappointed. Um, I was honestly like, I I felt bad for him that that he made such a dumb decision to make that post and like have everyone <laughs> everyone go nuts on him. 
But I was also just relieved because the whole thing I had just been through. So I was like, hey, everyone, I'm fine with him. We're fine. Like, we're, we're, we have an understanding. It's fine. <laughs> but yeah, it was too late. Living back at my parents' house in a small town that didn't have a music scene, that did, I didn't have a job, I didn't have any prospects, I didn't have any friends or people my age even around very much. And I went to the little singles ward like once. I started like skipping it because it was very depressing and it was really hard to be to be suddenly a teenager again, but I'm like a grown ass woman and have my parents being like, you're going to wake up and go to church today. Yeah. You know, I'm like, no, not today. I'm going through too much. I'm too, I'm too worn out. And you know, my dad, bless his heart and all his worry and care, like hands me the phone one day. It's for you. And I'm like, what? This is Bishop so-and-so. I, I heard you wanted to schedule it. Time to talk to me. I'm like, did I? <laughs> Your parents yeah. said something. Yes, Bishop so-and-so, let's meet on this day. Okay. And um, again, being honest with everybody and all the bishop interviews, I talked to the bishop and the stake president, and and I told them the whole situation, and both of them were like, I understand, like, this must be hard for you. And unfortunately, I just I just have to say that, like, this this man, if you, if you date him or have a relationship with him, like you will be technically like cheating on your, on your husband and, and breaking your vows. And, and you can't do that until your divorce is final. And I'm like, okay, not like <laughs> my husband is engaged. He, he is engaged and I have filed for divorce and I just don't, I just don't see these rules as that heavy in my life, like not holding that much weight in my life. We were having this, this relate, it was like a relationship of potential. We knew we had the connection, but we also knew that it might all be so different if we actually like had a relationship in person. So we were kind of like, we had so many feel like such strong feelings for each other, but we were also kind of just being reasonable about it. Like, I don't know what this will become. Um, but it was funny having these like feelings for him and, and he had lived in Utah and visited me in LA and then, and then he moved to Sacramento and I moved back to Idaho and then I moved to Utah and this was the place where he lived, but he wasn't there anymore. <laughs> um, so yeah, I finally was like, you know what? I don't know how much longer till my divorce is final. I don't, I'm not a teenager living with my parents right now. I don't have to, I'm an adult. I can decide to buy a plane ticket and go on a date <laughs> and they don't have to know about it. And I don't have to tell everyone everything. And I don't have to go to my bishop and be like, I'm going on a date. Like <laughs> I just, yeah, grew up a little bit more and realized I could make a damn decision. So I flew out to hang out with Zach for a couple days. Yeah. And and the um the connection was was not it was not weird in person. It was wonderful. That was great. <laughs> in the car on the way to his house, like they held hands, like we can hold hands. We can touch now. Mm. <laughs> it felt so like high school cute. Mm -hmm. And we we were holding hands in the car and he was doing this with his thumb. 
a little bit. He was kind of like moving his thumb. And I was like, oh, this person is touching me with intention and love. Yeah. <laughs> it like floored me that he was like caressing my thumb with his thumb. I was like, my neglected soul. Mm-hmm. Your love language is touch. Yep. <laughs> Everybody out there. Pull someone you love apparently close to you and caress their thumbs. Caress their thumbs. <laughs> See what happens. It was it was a, a revelation to me of how starved I had been for affection. I'm like, totally. this handhold is intentional and feeling. <laughs> so yeah, we've we've had a magical electrical connection ever since then. After that, I realized that my time in Sacramento was no longer. And I needed to move back to Utah after that. I never spent a single night at my mom's house. I <laughs> just like moved right in. So yeah, wherever Callie's thumbs need to be caressed, <laughs> Zach will be. I there. followed the thumbs. Yay. Yes. That's really sweet after just such a long harrowing journey. And then you're off to basically love and pop superstardom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was also fun having like, a month of basically just like slumber party, basically living together while I was still considering the church and not having sex. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of, a lot of tension there. A lot of buildup. Pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I still need to be, I need to really consider this and really work it through in my mind before making a final decision. And like that singles ward in Orem, like the one time I was like, I think I'm going to try church today. That I decided was, to sleep in. I'm, I'm like, I'm not going to church. That was a nail in the coffin. I'm not coming back here. <laughs> I still remember you walking through the door when you got home and you were like, you just had this look on your face. You're like, I, I'm not going back there again. <laughs> not a place for me. I don't believe this anymore. This guy came in late and kind of shuffled, shuffled, um through people and kind of sat in an empty spot by me and we like joked about something quietly and had a laugh and i'm like he's gonna hit on me later you know these things you know you you know these vibes Brett's coming his way into a full-blown i'm gonna ask you out <laughs> hit on you old <laughs> singles ward switcheroo yep i was like this this is what's gonna happen and then I didn't take the sacrament and he literally didn't look my direction uh -uh. one more time. <laughs> and I, I didn't, I wasn't interested. I was just like, Oh, okay. That's Welcome where I am. Utah. This is what's going on. Kelly, that you just crack the code on how to not get hit on in a singles <laughs> ward. Just when they're passing the tray, just be like, no, thank you. <laughs> not for me. That's for not taking this today. <laughs> That's for either not getting hit on or getting hit on by people with bad intentions. <laughs> Ooh, bad girl. Not taking the sacraments. <laughs> Sink their teeth into my prey. But yeah, that whole meeting, I just, I looked at the priesthood on the stand, the presiding Bishop Rick, and just thought I could like meet with them. I could, I could talk to this man. I could tell him my situation. I could, you know, get, I, I could seek his counsel and advice. And he wouldn't have any anything for me except like repent and like what you're doing is wrong. Because, um, you know, I was like living with Zach and we weren't having sex, but I mean, 
<laughs> we weren't doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> There's no place for me here unless I think that what I'm doing is wrong and I'm ready to change it, you know? Or, or one of my big revelations was that I felt the spirit more strongly and beautifully than I ever had right after having sex with him once. And I was like, I'm not supposed to be feeling this while doing this. Hmm. Maybe the church doesn't own this feeling. Maybe this is not their spirit, you know? And, and another one of those big revelations was remembering how the first time I started a question was in the temple. Like you were saying, like, this is the tempter is not a Satan is not allowed in here to, to like put thoughts in your mind. But this is where these thoughts happened. So yeah, there were a few kind of like things that felt like evidence to me. Like this disproves their claims. The goal with these themed EPs being to like cover a scope of emotions. The scope of the word sex, it's like on the surface, it's like sex. <laughs> relationships, like sexual relationships. But there's so much more to this word. And I wanted to address the relationship to self. And the first thing that came to my mind was when I first like truly decided I was going to, when I first truly decided that I really didn't believe in the Mormon faith anymore, a week or two after that, that I was like, I'm going to not wear my garments. <laughs> and it was like, Oh dear God, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm I'm, I'm putting on clothes without the garments. Like, uh -huh. <laughs> um, it, it felt scary and weird, and that made me irritated. I was like, this shouldn't feel scary and weird. <laughs> like, I don't believe this anymore. And I remember how great it was to wear normal underwear. Like, <laughs> so I I was like going out on a limp here. I'm trying this thing, and I. <laughs> I put on my speaking. <laughs> yeah. I changed my underwear. I won't get struck by lightning. Exactly. Don't have a limb. I know. Um, I remember pulling my jeans on. They were skinny jeans at the time. This was this was the fashion. <laughs> and I the feeling of denim on my thighs made me just break down crying. Mm. I was like, these are my thighs my thighs can feel my clothes right now like this is my body and it was one of the most spiritual moments in my life wow. pulling on skinny jeans and um for some reason that that moment like i yeah i i wept and i was just like this is this is big <laughs> this is beautiful nothing about this is scary this this is my body i remember now um, I was always supposed to, this was always supposed to be my body mm -hmm. <laughs> and like I haven't known that. You get married before you go through the temple when you're kind of a teenager and you're sometimes more in tune with that. And then you yeah. come into that, like as a woman and it's totally a new experience, a new feeling like as an adult. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. What it, people do not understand, but that's so funny <laughs> that you called it a spiritual experience, but I totally it, get it. It was. I, and I realized that in the moment too, I was just like, Oh. Like, I never have to be afraid of this again. I will just weep for joy every time I put my clothes on. <laughs> um, and that moment just came rushing back to me when I thought about trying to write a song for the sex EP about your relationship with your own body. 
Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's what started the song. Nobody, nobody told me that this was my body. I never believed it was mine. And, uh, and then all the, all the temple imagery came rushing in because that was where I learned, you know, that, that was the, that was the world that taught me that my body was God's or, you know, any number of men <laughs> who were interested in it. Um, so yeah, the song just kind of really flowed out and um, wrote itself after that. And I think it was one of those things where I was like awake at 4am once in a while. It's like 4am is my, is my songwriting like witching hour or something. It's once in Gwen a while. Gwen too. Did you know that? Really? No. Oh, nice. <laughs> I didn't know Four that. in the morning and the tears are pouring and I want to make it with the moon. She has a song called Four in the Morning too. That's, That's amazing. Um, <laughs> maybe it's, maybe it's a thing out there in the universe. Um, yeah, I, once in a while I find myself just like unable to sleep at 4am because a song is just coming at me. And I'm like, I, I remember thinking like, this is so blasphemous, but, but it's not, I'm not trying to be, it's, it's powerful and beautiful to me. It's, uh like this temple ceremony has owned this part of my of my sexuality and my concept of sex and mm -hmm. i am taking it back um so I, I very purposely made the choruses like <laughs> i very purposely walked through a temple ceremony in the verses and turned the choruses into an orgasm i was just like what i knew that's why i liked it so much <laughs> i was like what does an orgasm sound like in song that's like so cool. what are the words for the beautiful experience of <laughs> of an orgasm but um through the lens of like discovering my body and claiming my body today i touched my skin was like a, a reference to that that day of like, this is my skin. These are my thighs and my pants. Um, but I wanted it to also be an orgasm. <laughs> it's like this, these are probably the two most blasphemous things I could put together to a, to a true believing Mormon. But like, it, it's, I'm just trying to, I just want to claim this, ex reclaim this experience that I've been put through. Um, so yeah. Mm -hmm. So your body, your skin, your experience. Yeah. Yeah. People get on your back for saying, don't talk about the <laughs> sacred stuff. It's like, you did that too. You served your church well, and now it's time to reclaim it. Yeah. So dope. And I, I wanted to make it a song about sacred sex, sacred pleasure, sacred self-discovery. So um, today I touched myself and sank into the earth. I, I was literally like, what does an orgasm feel like? <laughs> sinking into the earth um but it also is trying to be a a reference of like earth spirituality my my new spirituality is very earth connected mm -hmm. um my death became my birth mm -hmm. is literally like the french call the orgasm a little death <laughs> so my my orgasm brought me to life <laughs> yeah <laughs> in in simple terms that's the chorus it's an orgasm but i wanted to make it feel deeply spiritual same time mm -hmm. yeah and i think with my ears like you know 
the sound orgasm because it has like that uh, when you get into the chorus that I told you that I love so much mm-hmm. and such a good lift off. And so besides the ear orgasm um, <laughs> that I didn't know that was like the exact intention that you're going with. Very clever. Um, but I think what a lot of people who have left the church, any church, basically <laughs> the ideas about my death became my birth where like you're dead to so many people and you're, you're dead in the eyes of God, stuff <laughs> like that. And yeah. like, everybody knows that like, that's a gift and that's a new rebirth and yeah. it's a stepping into your own autonomy now and just a perfect cherry on top of such a good chorus thanks (laughs) so glad you woke up and did that you know did you speaking of stealing other people's jokes for my podcast to make it funnier um hope that you know the mitch hebber joke where he says that sometimes i lay awake at night trying to write jokes in my bed and if the pen's too far away then i have to convince myself that what i thought of ain't funny she's like the same (laughs) songwriting like totally it's not that good go back to bed (laughs) but we all have our phones next to our bed now so we all have to write down our genius ideas like so hard anyway i sometimes it's funny because i i need to remember the melody and stuff but um sometimes i will try to half-ass it and be like i don't have to get up and go to the other room and voice memo saying i'll just I'll just write the lyrics and I have a system for like the rhythm. <laughs> I like write like dots and numbers. So I won't forget the rhythm of the words at least. That's funny. <laughs> the next day I'm like, but what's the melody? <laughs> Wake up. Kelly. <laughs> That's so interesting to hear inside your creative process. <laughs> All right. So I love YouTube so much. It's entire thing about being a corporation with copyright. I get it. <laughs> love you guys for that totally on your side however we're just both of us were so sad because now we can't play the song on youtube but you're obviously going to click the link down below and watch it 15 times in the background while you're listening to this entire interview and support die shiny in every way that you can possibly and go to their concert if you live in salt lake on the first of february but we thought it would be kind of cool to talk about the symbolism and metaphors and all the stuff that callie's been bringing up throughout this interview and Maybe I can just, I'll put some things on screen and you can take us through what your thought process was. Yeah, we can show you the stills from the music video um, that go along with the the, like visual symbolism that I'm talking about. Uh, Yes, thank you, YouTube, for protecting my copyright. But I wish I could be like, but let's allow (laughs) it on this video. They don't give us the... We uh, want a whole pass. They don't give us the control like that. (laughs) Our cinematographer, the videographer, director... Ryan Margetts is so amazing. <laughs> I want it to be something you're excited to work on. Is there one of our songs that like you connect with more? And he's like, oh, maybe we could do like Undertaker. And I was like, okay, here's a thought. I have a new song um, that I would love a video for. It's not out yet. And it is very uh, ex-Mormon. And I totally understand if that's not a vibe you want to go for. We can work on something else. Because <laughs> I was like, okay, how do I approach this? I don't, don't know this get person. get blacklisted or something? Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, it will, it does have some kind of Mormon temple ceremony themes to it. I don't want to like um, make you uncomfortable. Um, if you don't want to work on that, it's totally fine. And like his email back was a resounding like, fuck, yes, that's my vibe. Mm, (laughs) Yes, I want to work on that. And I had sent him our demo of the song, um, like our unfinished demo. And he was just like, so stoked about it. Um, 
and it's been a, a beautiful project ever since because mm-hmm. he um he took charge and all that i knew was i want to recreate a mormon temple ceremony in the desert with like the temple clothing kind of up fashioned <laughs> like made more artistic and cool looking and um what are you talking about it's designed <laughs> by god it's as, <laughs> as cool as it's gonna get yeah you guys did make it look pretty cool <laughs> i think everyone was pretty jealous you like looks freaking dope. I'd bail my face if it I looked that round. In my mind, I wanted to like marry it to the drama of like like Catholic imagery. All right, I could tell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was like more like I don't know, more cool looking. Um but still kind of clearly the the Mormon a play on the Mormon temple clothes. So, yeah, he had to reach out and find a crew for this of entirely people that were volunteering. There wasn't a budget. And I assume he was giving people some kind of disclaimer, but we ended up with like, like 16 people, I believe that worked on this thing total. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience and really cathartic for everyone. Um, and on the set, like, (laughs) you know, people would be kind of behind the scenes, not having a job at the moment. So, uh, did, did you go on a mission? Did you, you know, uh-huh. like people just having their own little conversations throughout. I bet it was cathartic for a lot of people involved. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of people said that. And there was just a feeling. It was just, there was a beautiful feeling there um, on every day of shooting. There were three days that it took to shoot this. Some of these things Ryan came up with entirely. And um, some of these things we worked through together. I actually reached out to Ryan and he, I said, do you want me to say anything on your behalf? Because this is every bit as much like his beautiful work of art as, as our mm, song is, you know, so nice team trauma effort. Yeah. So Ryan said from the first time I heard the song, I remember feeling that this was as much an anthem of feminine resilience and realization as it was an escape from religious suppression The Joan of Arc motif came to mind pretty quickly as a person who found salvation within herself in spite of external patriarchal figures and double standards. I've always seen Joan of Arc as a kind of queen and felt that the imagery of the video should carry that thread of self-sovereignty. So the black and white scenes in this video, there's one where I'm, I'm, I'm looking pretty androgynous. I'm in a, the black, a black kind of tunic. There's a version where I have a crown and I'm holding like an arrow. (laughs) And then there's a version where I am singing to the camera without the crown. Um, Those are direct, a direct homage to a 1928 silent film, French silent film called The Passion of Joan of Arc. And we, (laughs) we didn't know about this film. This was Ryan's idea. And so we found it and watched it. And I thought, oh, you know, a silent film from the twenties is going to be like all melodrama. It was one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen in my life. Um, I would put it in my top 10 easily. And a modern composer added this beautiful soundtrack that goes with the silent film. Um, So yeah, I highly recommend the passion of Joan of Arc. (laughs) Um, I think we like rented it on Amazon or something, but beautiful. Be confused with passion of the Christ. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Don't rent that one. <laughs> fiction. Fiction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of the best acting I've ever seen from the woman who played Joan of Arc. That's and, and we were trying to capture that feeling and vibe. There's one shot that has lace projected on my naked back. And I didn't even realize until he texted me the other day. The projection of lace onto naked skin is a symbol of inauthentic purity. I was like, oh my God, (laughs) that's beautiful. Mm. (laughs) Moving on, the white desert is the salt flats, the salt lake, the church headquarters nod. (laughs) A nod to salt lake and and the culture here that that began with the church. Um, So I knew I wanted to, to film that temple ceremony in the white desert and obviously that is also symbolizing like purity culture the next symbol veil the veil um all the veils in the video so there are veils that i'm wearing there's also like a a white sheet stretched in front of my body that i'm a silhouette behind a moment where i'm i'm like laying on the floor underneath a white sheet that's covering me and that sheet was actually wet. <laughs> it was really cold under there. But I'm just kind of moving my body around under a white sheet. Yeah. And the veil represents the the like oppression and the the silencing, the lesser status of women. Um in in the temple, the women are supposed to veil their faces during the true order of prayer, but the men don't have to. Um, which always felt like wait what is this? Why, why, why am I having to do this different thing? Um, yeah. I don't know if we want to talk about that. (laughs) Yeah. Anything you want to say on that? Like you mentioned in your story about like the very obvious ways that you started to realize that you were like your, your husband's submissive person in this relationship and from a very temple wedding endowment ceremony from the ways that you mentioned, like in the temple with Eve uh, partaking of the fruit and where Adam, he covenants with God, then she is directly talking to God. And then she goes and turns to, hey, Adam, I'm going to covenant with you as you covenant with God. And that's what you do as a representative of Eve and all that stuff, I think, is captured beautifully into the idea of, yeah, like veils and submission. And you are not true authentic self with your face and your skin yeah. and your humanity like before your maker yes it's the last I'm, thing on their minds I'm being i'm being covered i'm being i'm being forced to to hide this all and like um the shot where i'm wearing a veil that's like tightly wrapped around my neck is is very much about like being silenced being silenced if you question anything um yeah so mm-hmm. the veil was the very intentional um, symbol of of the oppression, the cage, mm-hmm. and I echo that in the in the lyrics in the second verse. The servant, the daughter, awaits at the altar. They will veil their faces now. I just I remember standing around um, the altar in, in the true order of prayer, and and I think that was the wording they said. The women will now veil their faces, if I remember correctly. It just was demanding. It, it felt very like, oh, oh, this you will do this. Like, don't you know your place? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the color green in the video um, represents shame and control by shame. So 
it's it's a play on the fig leaf apron. They're like, oh no, we see that we're naked. We have to cover it up. Um, and I had the men just covered in green <laughs> as the like this is like their mantle of control. This is what they use to have to like gain power to to exercise power over people mm-hmm. and control people. I don't know if they change the robes anymore. I, they've changed the temple I think, ceremony. Yeah, I think they do most things the same. You might not have to take on and off your shoes, but yeah. they, they don't have the women veil their faces anymore. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, and they don't have them covenant to obey their husbands anymore, do they? Yeah, they took that, that out. So what? we're off the hook. Yeah. Wow. Well, and when I hear those things, I'm, when people are like, oh, it's okay, they don't do that anymore. I'm like, well, good for you. <laughs> So did my God not pay attention to my vows then? Or are they like, <laughs> um, I still went through that. I know. Don't ask too many questions. <laughs> yeah. Just have faith. I'm I'm glad that they Doubt don't do that. Doubts. Yeah. <laughs> not your faith. That's pretty good. Yeah, whatever. It's pretty good. Not <laughs> your doubts. Um, so yeah, I mean, it is, it is good that they don't. It, any... Any bit that they make the temple ceremony less traumatizing for people currently, that's great. That, that is not a bad thing. But it doesn't change my story of having still been through that. They're in the video, they're ushering me toward the altar, and the high priest at the altar is waiting to receive me. Um, the gold coins in the video, it's a really, a really short part, but I'm brought to the altar by these men and one of them hands the priest behind the altar a pile of gold coins. So this represents the idea that in the temple you do have to pay for your tokens and signs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you because you can't enter the temple, you can't um be worthy to enter the temple unless you pay a full tithe. Um and the temple is where you receive your your tokens and your signs, your super secret passwords for getting into heaven, that pretty much means you have to pay for them. You have to pay to get those. Here's this woman. Here is the money that she has paid. Please give her, please give her salvation. I I don't think that you can see it um, very clearly at any point in the video, but I actually had the priest behind the altar wearing a gold necklace that has an emblem of the all-seeing eye. Because that, I believe, was used in early Mormonism as a symbol of the Melchizedek priesthood. Because um, they were all up into the occult business. And I just thought that would be fun. Dealing things from Freemasons. <laughs> yep. Don't act like it's so sacred and Callie can't use it. And they ripped off half that stuff you just mentioned. From yep. I, I Judaism. It, a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> I thought it would be fun to put some of that like early occult, like, symbolism in the video that that the church now kind of you know is real quiet about like no we're not weird like that they were never weird like that um yeah i just wanted something that the ex-mormons who know the history could could uh be amused by mm-hmm. <laughs> um on that note you brought props because <laughs> you know what uh, you can no. put your rock in my joseph smith hat right here too <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Yes. Oh, yeah. yes let's have some revelations um write a song (laughs) so the temple they they generally have like a white set of scriptures right on the altar because when they're 
um, they have everyone covenant to follow the word of God and they hold up the the white scriptures. But I wanted to um, nod to the gold plates as well. So I have my. <laughs> it says Pele Ale. It says Pele Ale. Nice. In, did you know that you can get reformed Egyptian font? Oh, <laughs> I thank found you. the font. Um, I wish I knew who to credit for this right now. We'll have to, we'll have to look that up. It's probably um, Sandra Tanner. It's when in doubt, <laughs> credit Sandra Tanner. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good rule. Um, so yeah, that was for my own amusement. Um, and the seer stone, we actually like looked at photos of the seer stone that the church vault has. And I sent him on a wild goose chase, like the day before filming, like find something that looks like this rock about the size of an egg. And he was like, uh, sending me pictures of stones. From yeah. Stone where shops. did you find that? Good <laughs> this God. one's not, I mean, it's not the same, but this was the prettiest, you know, closest in color. It was a cool rock shop in Sandy that I found it at. <laughs> Dope. Um, those are my fun little Joseph Smith props on the altar that I get to throw to the side when I run away. Okay. In this video, the color red is very important because it represents the awakening. There's a shot in the studio where I'm just wrapped in a red um, blanket and I'm, <laughs> I'm covered in like red makeup on my face. And, and this was supposed to be the awakening goddess. It kind of goes along with the apple. There's a lot of apple imagery in this video. This is where I get really deep into how, how I connect with um, this song and the whole concept, um, what we're talking about with Eve in the temple, how going through the temple and role-playing basically that you're Eve and you're watching this story unfold of Adam and Eve and you're making covenants along with Eve based on what she has done. Um, that was always so powerful to me. And of course, now I just, I feel like that, that's a, that's a myth. That's a, <laughs> that's a fun little um, ancient myth from our civilization. The Adam and Eve story is how I feel about that. Whereas I believed she was a, a real person that these things really happened to back then. With this song and video, I really wanted to reconnect with the archetype of Eve as a brave woman who uh, against all odds like defied the patriarchy to seek knowledge and truth and so that's what this this red goddess and is that's what this red goddess is embodying the the awakening to knowledge and truth part of the knowledge and truth that i have now is that my body is mine and no one can claim it but me. It, it, it's not ever going to be hidden under a veil or in a cage again. Yeah. So red represents that mm -hmm. liberation and the passionate beauty that that brings. Love that. The group of women that are in this video, um, as I'm presented at the altar, sitting there, the priest is behind me and I'm looking out into the distance. I see these women 
are gorgeous. <laughs> and I, I actually invited each one of them to be in this video. Um, like I, ch I chose them carefully as women who are magical, amazing people in my life that just display this, this beautiful liberation to me. So it was really, it was really special, like inviting these people that I, that I know these beautiful women to come and be a part of this with me. And their role in this video is they represent the, they represent the goddess as well. They're the goddess archetype, the, the hidden mother. Heavenly mother was always hidden from us, sitting at the altar, feeling uneasy and seeing these women. They're the beckoning goddess. The, there's more, there's more out here. We know, we know things come, <laughs> come get this knowledge we have. Mm -hmm. Um, so they represent the goddess and also like women who have been where I've been and are on the other side of it. Red stripes running down their chin. That was on purpose to represent that they have, they have eaten the apple. So they have this knowledge, <laughs> which I've heard about, which I don't have yet, but I see that they have it. Um, they desire all to receive it. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, and the, the blood, um, the red, the red, like blood bursts at, at their heart, um, represents the, um, the demand that is put on women in the church to give and give and give and give. Um, so these are women who have been through that hardship and <laughs> their hearts have been, have their hearts have had so much demand put on them and they have exploded and blown wide open. Mm -hmm. um, and they're just ready to receive. So yeah, that was one of the most uh, spiritual, beautiful parts of that shoot was the shot where I run into their arms and we all just collapse and sink down. Yeah. That actually wasn't um, planned. <laughs> They're just like, all right, setting up the cameras. They're like, okay, when we tell you, start running, run into them. And I'm like, okay, run into you guys, just like surround me and hug me. And <laughs> I ran to them and we naturally all just sank. And um, it was cold and people were kind of shivery uh, a little bit throughout the set, but we, we all sank into this little huddle and I was like, shaking and shivering and convulsing a little bit and one of my friends one of the goddesses with me kind of laughed like i know it's so cold and i'm like no I, no i'm sobbing <laughs> she was like oh everyone was like oh and we just stayed there and i cried and it was That's so <laughs> speechless yeah i, I can't That's begin so to say how cathartic this video yeah. was it was just yeah, it was beautiful. That's so cool. This is, um, you know, making the video and MTV. Remember when they used to do that? And yeah. The behind the yeah. scenes and stuff. So <laughs> hopefully when I put up all the pictures and hearing how it all came together, like no one would have known that you were convulsing with yeah. joy, sadness, all, of, yeah. all these mixed things. And they're just like, oh, you're, yeah, it's so cold in here. I'm like, no, I'm crying. <laughs> yeah. It's so beautiful, though. Yeah. The the red sheet that we cover the altar with, it's kind of self-explanatory after I've explained things, but it's basically 
reclaiming. So the altar is representing this past trauma of this, um, this place that taught me my, my body didn't belong to me. Um, so the altar is that the symbol of that trauma and we are, we're claiming it as our own and changing its meaning and covering it in the red of truth and passion and knowledge. And the, uh, Last but not least, the altar orgy. It's tame. It's a clothed orgy. <laughs> we have a moment where we're all writhing together on this altar. And... The only way to ride is on an altar. <laughs> yeah, just... I've writhed in other places, <laughs> but if it's not on an altar, get a new place to ride. I know. Continue, right? Callie. Wait, do you want? We have an altar at our house now. Okay, yeah, yeah. We built that altar. Oh no we, way! We disassembled it now. Actually, yeah, it's a good part. We should have sold it. Just sold it on KSL for somebody's sex room. Yeah. <laughs> Writhers are us. Okay. I just, I love the word writhe and I want to say it all day. Continue. <laughs> so the altar orgy, if you will, um, we just had to have that like joyous celebration of body autonomy, like sexual freedom. Like we are fully realizing that we own our bodies and we're celebrating this together. And it kind of, I just also needed to have a straight up kind of fuck you to the homophobia of the church. So, yep. <laughs> Whatever. They, some a lot of repressed people probably secretly loved it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, like that was decided kind of there. Like we knew we were going to cover the altar in red and we're like, maybe we dance around it. Maybe we have just like a witchy dance. Mm -hmm. We thought at one point maybe we burn it. Um, but we didn't know if we could do that legally and we found out we couldn't. So <laughs> that was when it was like, okay, we'll cover it in red instead. And <laughs> this is so much better. It's like yeah. burning the altar would have been the obvious thing, mm -hmm. but covering it in red and <laughs> the, the women that were there with me, I was just like, um, I want everyone to be comfortable. And I, I believe consent is very important here. So let's talk about this, but I think it would be amazing if we had a bit of a homoerotic moment on the altar. Uh -huh. um, and I want to know if you're comfortable with that. No one has to do anything they're not comfortable with. And everyone was like, yes. <laughs> Everyone's like, I mean, I wouldn't do it normally, but if you're asking me to act, I'll, I'll be a good actress. I'll play the part if you want me to. I, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I think the word profound is overused. Who cares? But just... Um, Everything that you've explained that you've put so much thought into and pulled out of this culture, this religion, your personal experiences that just people on the set that you worked with um, had these cathartic experiences, people in my followers and your fan base and everybody. I like it feels like the the response has been just really yeah cathartic and wonderful and stuff. But have you gotten any any other alternative pushback? For your alternative music video so far no so far no. that's what i like to hear i'm so i'm confused by it i i mean i got so much what is love <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i got so much blowback in like 2013 from being in a rock band and showing a little under boob in one of my videos and saying that i was not in the church anymore like i lost so many followers and got so much blowback and kind of got some some rejection sensitivity from that. Um, and I was ready. I, I mean, you can ask Zach. I was like rehearsing. 
this is my story and I respect that it's not yours and it wasn't about you or intended to hurt you. I was like so ready for what to say. And I just haven't had to. <laughs> Good. Um, so I guess I'm kind of stuck in this state of preparing for it and a little nervous, but locked and loaded. I can, I can handle it. <laughs> yeah. It's my story and no one gets to tell me it's invalid because it's what I've been through. Do you want to speak to at all, like sending the video or any conversations that you've had with like active Mormon family, particularly ones who are famous vloggers or even <laughs> skip over that part? No. Um, yeah, I, so I have like a fair amount of my family is not in the church anymore and have been really, really stoked for me, really excited and, and told me that it's beautiful and powerful. Oh, good. Um, I'm so glad you have that support. Yeah. Uh, and, and a few member family members that I've been worried about like hurting and, you know, some of them, I think just haven't seen it and I'm like, okay, that's fine. Just, just keep not seeing it. It's fine. Um, my sister Colette, I don't, she's, she is, she's a very special creature. It's <laughs> a very special, beautiful creature. <laughs> and I don't know anyone else like her. And we have, we, well, I told you we have, we're soulmates. We have a bond. Mm -hmm. She actually, she commented on one of my videos and, and just said like, this is beautiful. I don't remember, you know, some short, nice, uh, comment, but she took the time to reach out to me to video message me and say, Hey, I just, I wanted to let you know, like, I'm so excited for you and your new video it's so high quality. It's like, mm -hmm. I, I noticed she was like pointing out the quality of the video. I'm like, Oh, she might be uncomfortable about, but she's trying to, she's trying to compliment the things she can or whatever. But she said, it's so high quality. It's really beautiful. Like the, the production of the song, the production of the video blow me away. Um, and then, and I was like, maybe she'll leave it there. But she was like, I know we believe different things, but I just want you to know that I, I understand you and like, um, and she actually brought up our connection. She's like, you and I have a connection, mm -hmm. um, since we were children and she started crying. <laughs> she, mm -hmm. she teared up on her polo and was like, I understand you. And it was really beautiful. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's a, she's a special kind of Mormon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No shade on that beautiful woman. And sounds like your connection can withstand even the difference of your beliefs and the ways that you express it. And I'm so glad that you have that kind of kind as best as she can be from the kind of stature she is still in the church. Yeah. So <clears throat> glad you have that. I, and I even had, I had shown her the song when it wasn't finished early on. And I, I prefaced it. I'm like, so <laughs> this is what the song is about. This is what it means to me. And I, I know it has like some, some language in it that will be offensive to, to temple going Mormons. And uh, I had, I had shown her that it, this was before the song had the, the extended bridge. So the health in the navel bit. <laughs> health in the navel. The marrow in the bones, <laughs> the choir in the sand use. Yeah. Yeah. The choir. You word singing. it a little bit different, but yeah, <laughs> I, it's so, very directly stolen from the temple yes. script. Actually, thank you for 
bring that up because I was going to mention that and I, I forgot. Um, I very purposely took the good bits of that, left out the priesthoody stuff, and turned it into a mantra of liberation. Like that, that was my intention for that part was, listen, this, this phrase was very important to me in a life where I felt um, like I belonged to someone else and I was mm-hmm. oppressed and I was small. Um, this was like the utmost of importance. I would recite this thing in my, in my, in my dreams, you know, like I gotta remember it, gotta remember it. Um, and I wanted to own this phrase, turn it into a, a delightful witchy spell to masturbate to. It's <laughs> just like, <laughs> hallelujah celebration. This is my body. Mm-hmm. I have strength. Um, yeah, health in my navel, strength in my bones, my marrow, <laughs> sinew, my loins, like power. I have power in this. So, <laughs> yeah, that part didn't exist when I first showed her the song. And so I, w- even though she, um, so when I first showed her the song, that part didn't exist, but I gave her the disclaimer and she gave me a giant hug and was like, it's so beautiful. It makes me so emotional. Whoa. Like, like this is a powerful song for you. She's very good at understanding that someone else's story, it doesn't have to be hers. It doesn't have to fit with hers for her to respect it. So I, and I respect the hell out of that. Yeah. And I was worried about her. It came together so wonderfully, beautifully, hella cool, and got my attention for sure. And hopefully gets a lot more people's attention out there. (laughs) And how many people are you hoping show up to the the Urban Lounge show on February 1st? Oh, man. So this show, this is our first time planning our own show ever. We've been playing shows for like a year and a half, but... We've always joined the bill, you know, we're always opening for someone else and not having to worry that much about like how many people we can bring. But since we planned this show, like we're responsible for making sure the venue makes enough money for it to be worth them giving us the show. Um, so, yeah, I I mean, please come. <laughs> oh, how many does it hold? It holds 450. 450? <laughs> yeah. Okay, I bought two tickets. <laughs> Yes, I think we're on my our sister way. bought two. Mm-hmm. All right, <laughs> and we're on our way, and we're gonna we're gonna sell you guys out. Okay? It's it's gonna be a good show. It's gonna be our first time um, using, or it's gonna be our first time having like on stage visuals. We have a person yeah. doing projection visuals for us. We're yep. playing through the whole of our first CP and the whole of our new EP. It would mean a lot to me personally if every single person listening that lives within the proximity of driving distance of Urban Lounge in Salt Lake could come out and buy a ticket and support you guys. And yeah, it is a Thursday night, but there's only three bands, so yeah. it shouldn't go too late. Yeah. Oh, I wanted a rager till the early dawn. <laughs> I mean, we can we have an after party. <laughs> I thought you guys were rock stars. <laughs> we're in our late thirties now. We don't party like rock stars. <laughs> I don't know. If we get enough people to this show, then maybe the venue will be impressed and be like, "We'll get you on a weekend next time." <laughs> yeah, yeah, super cool. You guys are obviously went on a long life journey and came together producing really cool music. That's meaningful to you guys and other people and i just know that 
whatever you believe in. It's just, you guys are on such a good path right now. And I'm just happy that I could have you on and support you. I just feel all the good vibes and know you guys are going to be so successful, especially selling out at Urban Lounge, (laughs) February 1st. Um, So many friends over here were so kind to let me fit in with their cool tie-dye club and got me a shiny shirt that I'll be wearing what should i wear it to the concert and just fit in with the other groupies perfect <laughs> you'll see me wearing that and um got the cd for the new ep for sex can't have enough sex in my life no, just <laughs> you guys know me so well just kidding. um so sacrament is one of the songs that are on this new album and you guys are absolutely going to crush it and be super hyper successful especially I don't let anyone that I know be not successful. So now that we're friends, I'm just like, anything you need, come on the podcast anytime. Well, thank, you. thank you. Support good, like local artists, people who are trying to make a living doing this stuff. I know it's hard and such a grind and hope that you can see the fruits of your labors with some kind of pun in there with the apple. Yeah. Tie your own metaphors together. You guys do that <laughs> for me. I'm already a huge fan from the first second that I heard the orgasm put to music and i said <laughs> they know what they're doing over there die shiny it was lovely to meet you and Yay. your audience received us beautifully and made us so happy thank you yes just to let you guys know i will be having lots of fun diverse content coming out planned for the next many many months i have therapists and historians i have my multi multi-part series with barbara jones brown the mormon historian on um the mountain meadows massacre that's going to be incredible so please tune into that series we're taking a really deep dive on all of that stuff a lot of amazing guests with stories and backgrounds and expertise that i think it's going to offer a wide array to serve just the post-religious community deconstruction community out there at large and also the ex-mormons who i love who have my heart so please make sure that you have not been a stranger to the subscribe button thank you guys so much for your support and i will see you next time on the mormon history hoedown love you so much guys